The History of Philosophy, Founders of Western Philosophy, Thales to Hume. Lecture 5. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Last week we surveyed Aristotle's epistemology and some of the essentials of his metaphysics. In regard to metaphysics, we said that reality for Aristotle is this world, the world in which we live, the world of concrete, particular, individual things as revealed to man's senses. We said that for Aristotle, each particular, each primary substance is, if you recall, comprised of two elements, a universalizing element which constitutes the basis for our putting it into a certain class and ascribing to it a certain nature, and an individuating element, an element which constitutes the basis of its uniqueness, that which makes it a this. And you recall Aristotle's specialized technical terms for these two elements, form and matter. Matter, we went on, is the stuff or material comprising a thing. Form represents its structure or organization. And in these terms, change, we said, is the process of matter taking on new form. So that change in no way involves a contradiction. It is eminently logical, rational, scientifically intelligible. Or using the other terminology that we developed, we could say that change is the passage from potentiality to actuality a process we saw which occurs in orderly, predictable, lawful ways. And every change we saw involves four essential factors, four causes, as they are called. The material cause, that is the material from which the change proceeds. The formal cause, which is the new structure imposed on that material. The efficient cause, which is the action of the agent which gives the new structure to the matter and the final cause, the end or goal or purpose of the process, the final answer to the question, why does it occur? Now, against that two-minute recapitulation, let us pick up from this point without further ado and continue with Aristotle's metaphysics. And the first question is, is this first uh, four-cause analysis of change really put forward by Aristotle as universal? as applicable to all changes of every kind. Because, as applied to human action, you might say his analysis is obviously sensible, as against, for instance, the mechanism of the atomists who deny the reality of purpose. But you will probably ask, what about unconscious biological change? For instance, an acorn changing into an oak. And what about non-biological inanimate change? For instance, a case from the realm of physics such as uh, upsetting a bucket of water on the top of a hill and then the water flowing down the hill. How do the four causes operate in these areas? Well, consider as examples the two cases I just mentioned, the acorn becoming the oak and uh, the water flowing downhill mechanically. The first three causes, the material, formal, and efficient, still apply obviously. In both these cases, you start from something the acorn, or the water on the top of the hill, which are respectively the material cause of these two changes. In both these cases, you go to a new form, the oak or the water at the bottom, and that is the formal cause. And in both these cases, the change is effected by some means. Now here I don't have to specify. 
There are various biological and or mechanical process of different kinds at work on the matter, in quotes, effecting the change. And those are the efficient cause. But the big question is what about the final cause? Does it apply to such processes also? According to Aristotle, the answer is yes. Now, why did he hold this? Well, I have to point out that Aristotle's favorite subject was biology. Plato's favorite subject was mathematics. Aristotle's was biology. He was, of course, not only a great philosopher, but also a great biologist. And he tended to use biological examples and then make metaphysical generalizations from them. And in biology, the doctrine of final causes at least has a considerable plausibility. For instance, look at the growing acorn. Watch the little acorn become a sprout, and then a young plant, and so on through all the intermediate stages until it becomes a fully mature tree. Now, asks Aristotle, can you explain this progression of stages as simply a blind reaction to outside forces, which has no inherent aim or end toward which it's striving. Observe a plant's actions. They are unconscious, but nevertheless, the plant turns toward the sunlight. It sends its roots out reaching for water. If you put a rock in its way within appropriate size limits, it will push against the rock to try to go around it. It seems apparent from these and countless other such facts, says Aristotle, that the plant has a goal to live to grow, to reach its full development, its form, its actuality. It does not seem to be simply an indifferent reactor to external stimuli. Or consider the self-repairing actions of an animal body. You break your arm. Now, within certain limits, the bones knit. Of course, beyond a certain point, there's nothing the body can do. You cut your finger, and the body forms a scab. And we say, why does it do that? In order to keep the germs out. That's a final cause, an end, a goal. You contract a disease, to take a modern example, and the body manufactures antibodies. And we say, why? In order to fight the disease. Look at the organs of an animal body. Each of them has a function, which is often described in terms of its end or goal. What are the lungs for? In order to take in air. What is the heart for? In order to pump blood, etc. It seemed to Aristotle obvious that the organs and the actions of living entities have ends or goals. That their structure and functioning does not seem to be just the result of an indifferent reaction to outside factors. It seemed to him obvious that living things aim at an end, a goal that they strive for that as far as they can. And their goal is to develop, to grow, to reach their full form or actuality. And their completed form he calls their entelechy, E-N-T-E-L-E-C-H-I. That's the final completed form of a living thing, the oak tree in relation to the acorn. This goal seems to him to be the primary factor determining the actions of the living entity. Now he asks, how would you account for all this behavior except by reference to an end or goal guiding the living thing? Suppose we ask the atomists, he says, how they would account for it. 
They would say it's simply a blind mixing and unmixing of the atoms owing to mechanical forces. Well, Aristotle says, if we granted such a thing as a blind mechanistic mixing of atoms, that might produce a few cases of acorns becoming oaks. But why does it happen regularly? What keeps the process on the track so many times? On the theory of atomism, why isn't it the case that sometimes by mechanistic reactions, the uh, atoms making up an acorn are reshuffled and come out as carrots or playing cards or Hegel? Why do they <laughs> Why do they repeatedly, regularly come out as oak trees? Now, Aristotle granted they do not always come out as oak trees because there are stunted acorns. Uh, his expression for this is they happen always or for the most part. Always or for the most part. But such regularity, he says, implies an aim inherent in the process to keep it on the track. And therefore, Aristotle is a teleologist. That is to say, a universal teleologist. He believes that everything that exists, uh, every change has a final cause. Now, as far as the inanimate world, we won't labor that point, his physics, but it seems that he generalized from human and biological behavior to the inanimate world as a whole. In his view, the inanimate world is, subs is ultimately reducible to four basic elements. Earth, air, water, and fire. That he just took over from early Greek physics. Each of these elements, he believes, has its own natural place, its own proper location in the universe. And that location represents its true form or actuality. And therefore, the final cause of each mechanical change is ultimately reducible back to the aim of the elements to reach their natural place. Now, for instance, the natural place of water is next to the earth. And therefore, if you take water way up in the air and turn it upside down, turn the pail upside down, the water is on its way back to its natural place, and that's its final cause. On the other hand, the natural place of fire is up near the heavens, and that's why when you light a match, the fire goes up instead of going down, and so on. For Aristotle, therefore, everything has an end or goal, whether it's human, biological, or inanimate. And the ultimate natural goal of the thing is to reach its form. In this sense, the formal cause and the final cause of every change become the same thing, the same form. For instance, when the acorn becomes the oak, the formal cause is the new structure. And the final cause is to acquire and develop that same new structure. And the way this is usually put is the formal and final causes are, for Aristotle, the same single fact, the same form, regarded from two different perspectives. You call it the formal cause when you regard the form as already attained. You call it the final cause when you regard the form as being aimed at but not yet attained. And this is known technically as the Aristotelian doctrine of the identity of the formal and final causes. It's simply a way of expressing his particular version of universal teleology. Now there are, of course, I here interject <coughs> a critical comment. There are many objections uh, to this view of Aristotle's. Uh, obviously, purpose is not in, or goal-directed behavior. He does not intend in a conscious sense, in the case of unconscious entities. And yet it's very difficult to know what exactly it would mean to talk of an unconscious goal-directed action. If goal-directed action is taken at its face value, it implies an entity with the capacity to be aware of a future state and to pursue it. 
what exactly it would mean to pursue a future state by an entity deprived of the capacity for awareness of anything, including of the future, remains a mystery. And, of course, Aristotle does not want to say that it's an unconscious striving, nor certainly that it's a conscious striving in these cases. And ultimately, it seems that he must leave the mechanism of such goal-directed behavior in such cases unintelligible, at least from the surviving writings that we have. And, of course, many people have argued that you can give an alternative explanation of the apparent purposiveness of biological phenomena, an explanation which, in fact, denies that there is such a thing as purposive, unconscious action. People say frequently, well, couldn't living entities be built in such a way, have such a nature, that no matter what happens to them within the appropriate limits, their necessary reaction is a pro-life course of behavior. So that it would look as though they are pursuing an end, but in fact they are simply expressing their nature. And sometimes the example of a thermostat is cited in this connection. It is so structured that whatever the force is operating upon it within certain limits, it will react in order to produce a certain temperature. Someone unfamiliar with this mechanism might say the thermostat has an end because it systematically acts to achieve a certain goal. But in fact, it is simply expressing the laws of its nature without itself pursuing an end. In other words, people have argued, and you can see the plausibility in this, that you can use Aristotle's own concept that the nature or actuality of a thing determines its behavior in order to explain the biological phenomena that he refers to, and that you do not need reference to final causation to keep such phenomena on uh, the track, simply an appropriate kind of efficient causation. Now, I want, above all, to be fair to Aristotle, so I should mention that the issue of Aristotle's teleology and how precisely to interpret it is a very controversial question. I've given you, in effect, the standard traditional interpretation, but others are possible, and have some basis in the writings which have come down to us. In particular, it's possible to interpret Aristotle's teleology as in no way implying any unconscious striving or yearning for a goal on the part of non-conscious entities. Now, of course, that would raise the question, well, what then does teleology consist of, and how would you defend this interpretation of Aristotle? This, however, is a technical question entirely beyond the scope of this course. For those of you who are interested, I might mention a doctoral dissertation which is being written on this exact subject by Professor Alan Godhealth, titled Aristotle's Conception of Final Causality, and I understand it will be available in the stacks at Columbia University sometime in the spring of 1973. And I refer those interested in this subject to that work for a thorough discussion of the complex issues involved in this point. Uh, before we leave the subject of Aristotle's teleology, however, I do want to mention one unfortunate effect of Aristotle's teleology on his viewpoint. Namely, that it prevented him from grasping explicitly the idea of a universe run by absolute natural laws. You recall I said last week that although Aristotle laid the basis for cause and effect, he himself seemed from the surviving fragments to have no clear idea of a universal reign of cause and effect. Because he observed that sometimes acorns don't become oaks, they are stunted. Sometimes little babies don't grow up into healthy men, they become monsters. And here I mean not moral monsters, but metaphysical freaks. In other words, sometimes the teleological process 
seems to be interfered with or break down. And consequently, for Aristotle, what happens in the physical world is not absolutely necessary. Certain things, he says, are necessary if the end, the form, is to be achieved. But he maintains there is such a thing as accidental or chance factors, which can interfere occasionally and thus uh, breach uh, the absolute universality of natural law. Consequently, for Aristotle, laws are always are, are always expressed in the form such and such happens always or for the most part. And the exceptions, being cases where final causality breaks down in his view, cannot be scientifically understood. They are outside the province of science in Aristotle's view. These accidental facts, he says, are simply brute contingent facts. That's the later word for it. That is to say, facts which cannot be ultimately explained, brute data which we simply have to accept as uh, facts. And thus, you see, even Aristotle, for those of you who know the later Kantian philosophy, accepts a form of the necessary versus contingent dichotomy. And that, of course, feeds very nicely into Kant's later analytic-synthetic dichotomy. And uh, if you ask Aristotle, well, what is his explanation for such accidental or chance phenomena? Characteristically, he says that in those cases, the form was thwarted in its development by matter, by the resistance of the material element. Now, that is an obvious platonic carryover in him, a legacy of Plato's myth of the demiurge, if you remember, who tried to shape matter to the perfection of the forms, but met a certain resistance. And uh, uh, this kind of element does exist in Aristotle. Needless to say, this is a very bad limitation on science. It prevents the world from being wholly intelligible if you accept this doctrine. And that's why I stressed last week that although Aristotle laid the basis for causality, he did not himself have any clear idea that every event is necessitated in accordance with strict universal laws. I might mention another root of his belief in chance or contingency is that he apparently believed in free will, but seems to be unclear how to reconcile free will with the universal reign of cause and effect. And that is another element feeding his uh, view that there is contingency, chance, uh, at work in the universe. Now, a last word on Aristotle's teleology. It is what is known as imminent, I-M-M-A, immanent. In other words, each thing is metaphysically egoistic, so to speak. It is not striving to achieve an outside cosmic purpose, as, for instance, in the Christian version of teleology, everything is striving to fulfill God's purpose. Or for Plato, everything is striving to satisfy an external form of the good. In Aristotle, the end of each thing is imminent within it. Namely, each thing is striving to reach its own fulfillment, actualize its unique potentialities, reach its own form. Everything is striving to realize itself. And this is therefore very often referred to as the metaphysics of self-realization. In the broadest sense, encompassing now water going downhill and acorns becoming oaks. And as you'll see uh, this evening, that becomes the metaphysical basis of Aristotle's ethics. It is a universe of development in which everything is striving to develop itself, fulfill itself, ascend the ladder from matter to form, become fully and in actual reality what it has in it to become. Now let's ask the question, what keeps it all happening?
what keeps things striving to actualize their forms? What keeps things on the go? Why are the acorns out to become oaks and the baby busily changing into a man and the water flowing downhill and the sculptor shaping his statues, etc.? Why does the universe not run down, stop dead, become motionless? In a word, what is the cause of motion? And by motion in this question, we mean any change, any happening, any occurrence. Now, please note that for Aristotle, motion always existed. Motion is eternal. There was never a time, he insists, when there was not motion. And his proof of this is that time itself is simply a measure of motion. A year, for instance, if we take modern astronomy, is the period of the revolution of the Earth around the sun a day, a period of the rotation of the Earth on its axis. If we stopped all motion completely, then of course there would be no years, no days, no seconds, no time. And uh, if so, to speak of a time when there was no motion would be to speak of a time when there was no time, since time is simply the measure of motion, and that would be a contradiction. Consequently, Aristotle concludes time is eternal, as the measurement of motion, and therefore motion is eternal. Consequently, the cause of motion that we're looking for is not something which starts motion at a particular point in time. No, it's the eternal factor, whatever it is, which underlies all motions and explains why there is such a phenomenon as motion in the universe. Any particular motion can be explained by an earlier motion. Why did this thing happen? Because this one did. And why this? Because this one, and so on. But what we want to know is what explains the fact of motion as such. Now let us engage in a chain of reasoning here with Aristotle. And let us call this factor, whatever it is that is responsible ultimately for motion, the mover. M-O-V-E-R. If you want to anticipate, you can give it a capital M. What can we infer about it? Well, of course, the first thing is it must be an eternal existence, since it is the cause of motion, and motion is eternal. Well, let us ask the question, can the mover itself move? Answer, no. This mover must be itself unmoved and even immovable. Why? Well, if the mover itself were capable of motion, as soon as it moved, the question would obviously become, how do you explain its motion? We'd have an infinite regress. If we are trying to explain the phenomenon of motion, we obviously can't do it by appealing to something which either moves or is capable of moving, because we would be going in a circle. We would be begging the question. We'd be assuming the thing we're trying to explain. If you want the ultimate source of motion, the prime mover, you see, then uh, it, whatever it is, must be beyond motion. It must be immovable. Well, from that we can infer right away that it has no potentialities at all. Because anything with potentialities is capable of change when its potentialities are realized or, actu or actualized. A thing which is immovable is a thing which must be devoid of potentiality. What then would it be? Well, the only other category is actuality. So this must therefore be pure actuality. Or to use the other term, it must be pure form. It will be an individual thing, not a platonic universal. But it is not a stuff or matter organized in a way which can be differently organized. 
It, therefore, will be an exception to the metaphysical principle that I told you last time of no matter without form and no form without matter. It will be pure form, pure actuality. And therefore, of course, it will not be material or physical in the modern sense either, because anything material or physical is capable of change. Well, let's observe another thing about this mover. We're slowly sketching in a little uh, biography or character sketch of this mover. Whatever it is, and we don't know yet fully, it must be perfect, completely perfect. Because we know that everything <coughs> is striving to realize its potentialities, to achieve the higher state of actuality. And we know that it must be better to be actual than potential. That is why everything strives to achieve the actuality. And this is inherent in teleology, at least as advocated by Aristotle. Everything is striving for the best state, the state of fulfillment. Now here in the prime mover, we have a being that has no unrealized potentialities, a being which is pure actuality. And it, therefore, has hit the metaphysical jackpot. It must be perfect. Well, you must, might ask yourself, how does such a mover cause motion? Could it reach out and push the world? No, because it can't move. It can't push the world. It can't pull it. It can't even desire, because desire is a form of motion, a mental motion. It can't even say to itself in prime mover language, let there be motion, because it cannot speak. It cannot will. It's motionless. It is truly immovable. Well, what is the solution to this dilemma? How does it function to uh, cause motion? Now, to, to understand Aristotle's answer, you have to know something of his astronomy which was not original with him, but was a standard Greek view, which he simply took over from the scientists of the time, the way a modern philosopher might take over Einsteinian physics from the physicists. <coughs> For Aristotle, the universe is a nest of hollow, crystalline, transparent spheres, connected along an axis, and embedded in the sides of these uh, sp spheres are the various heavenly bodies, the sun, uh, the stars, the planets, etc. The Earth, he believed, is at the center and it is stationary. These various spheres revolve around uh, the Earth and the rotation or the revolution of the various spheres is what's responsible for the motions that we observe of the sun and the planets and the fixed stars across the sky. There is, according to Aristotle, and this also is not an original view with him, a soul or an intelligence connected to each of the spheres. These spheres are, in effect, semi-divine in the Greek view. They are regarded as living entities. Uh, the reason seeming to be that they were the heavenly motions were so perfectly ordered and so long known that it seemed to suggest to the Greeks that the, an intelligence of some sort had to be guiding them and keeping them on their perfect course. Well, in any event, as I say, the various revolutions of these sp spheres are responsible for the motions we observe, which are communicated along the axis. Now, the problem of motion, therefore, reduces to the problem of getting the outermost sphere moving, the sphere in which, according to Aristotle, the fixed stars are embedded. If we could get the other one moving or explain its motion, of course, it always has been moving, but if we could explain its motion, that motion, of course, would be eternally communicated along the various axes to the rest of the spheres and ultimately to the things on the Earth. So we have this nest of spheres with the outermost one 
guided by an intelligence. Uh, many of them have intelligences. I can't recall offhand if all of them do or not, but there's more than one intelligence. And beyond, there is the perfect immovable mover. Well, now, if you have any power of imagination, you should be able to figure out the solution. The intelligence connected to the outermost sphere is capable of awareness as an intelligence. And particularly, it's capable of being aware of the prime mover. It is eternally aware of the prime mover. And it is aware of the perfection of the prime mover. It wishes with all its might to emulate this perfection. In other words, to do the most perfect thing that it can do. Now you simply ask yourself, what would you do if you were an intelligence connected to a sphere and you wanted to do the most perfect thing? Well, it's obvious that you would go in circles. <coughs> you would engage in circular motion. This is the best motion because that's the only eternal motion, ultimately. If it went in a straight line, since the universe is finite, it would have to turn around at a certain point so the motion wouldn't be unbroken. So the best motion is going round and round. Consequently, the famous line that you have heard is an actual description of Aristotle's metaphysics. It is love that makes the world go round. <laughs> there is, in effect, a cosmic, if one-sided, love affair between the intelligence which moves the outermost sphere and the prime mover. And its motion, once it's going around, is then communicated along the axis to the rest of the spheres in the Earth. So the prime mover causes motion in the same sense in which a beautiful woman put at the front of the room, who was herself entirely motionless, might produce motion in her direction on the part of certain members of the class who might wish to emulate or participate in her perfection. <laughs> the prime mover is the cause of motion in the sense of the final cause. Now, what is the nature of the prime mover? It is not matter, and it must, says Aristotle, we must think of it as a mind, so we can now start saying he. What do minds do? They think. But this must be a very special kind of thought process because no motion is allowed. And so it must be a kind of motionless contemplation, not a process of sensing or inferring or reasoning, uh, you can get as close to it as we as human beings can get if you look at the tip of my finger, but motionlessly. Don't blink and don't draw any conclusions. Just without a flicker of mental activity, look at a motionless finger. Now, of course, as soon as I move my finger, that wipes out, that introduces mental motion in you and changes your mental state so it's disqualified. But in, if you, have, you can grasp a motionless contemplation, that's what the prime mover does. Well, what is the object of its contemplation? Well, it can only contemplate something which is motionless, obviously. And the only thing which is motionless is the prime mover. And consequently, Aristotle draws the conclusion that the prime mover thinks or is conscious only of himself. He describes it as pure self-consciousness, thought thinking about itself. Now, this eternal, immutable, perfect, utterly self-absorbed mind, responsible for the motion of the universe, Aristotle frequently calls Theos, God. And this is therefore regarded as Aristotle's God. Now you see that there is a strong element of Platonism here, the idea of a pure, immutable, perfect form, 
uh, is a pure Plat uh, Platonist idea. And uh, it, of course, represents the primacy of consciousness uh, in an obvious, blatant way. Here's this prime mover is a pure consciousness, detached from reality, responsible for the activities of things on Earth. Now, this is a glaring contradiction to Aristotle's distinctive approach and represents a platonic carryover. But you see that even when he's a Platonist, he's also an Aristotelian. Uh, even his Platonism is modified because this is a god that would not do a religious person very much, if any, good. <laughs> this god didn't create the universe. Remember, he is unmoved. The universe is eternal. You couldn't pray to this god because he couldn't hear you. This god couldn't perform miracles even if he could hear you. He's completely impotent. He has no plan. He does not even know that the world exists. Uh, he has, therefore, neither knowledge nor power. He is utterly ignorant and impotent. And indeed, Aristotle discusses him primarily in his physics. And it's sometimes said that the god for Aristotle is simply a footnote to physics. Uh, it is not uh, a central concept. And Aristotle is frequently attacked, uh, in spite of the prime mover, on the grounds that he lacks any real religious feeling or interest. And that is true. The best illustration of this fact is that after he arrived at the prime mover theory, the astronomers came back and reported to him that one component of motion would not be enough to account for the observed motions of the heavenly bodies. And that, as they had calculated it, we need either 47 or 55 separate components of motion to account for the heavenly bodies. At which point Aristotle appended a chapter saying there is not one prime mover, but either 47 or 55 of them. <laughs> and some books seriously, therefore, classify Aristotle as a polytheist on this group. <laughs> now that shows how seriously he took it. Now, of course, the answer to this argument is that its basic question is misguided. The question, how do you explain motion in the sense Aristotle asks it, is an illegitimate question. Motion must simply be regarded, the fact of motion as such, as an irreducible primary. In the same way that the fact of existence as such is an irreducible primary. You can explain any particular existent in terms of the actions of other existents. But the phenomenon of existence as such, as Aristotle understands, is simply there. That's where you start. And an equivalent account would have to be given of the phenomenon of motion as such. If you attempt an explanation of motion, Aristotle is the only one. The only explanation of motion would have to be in terms of an unmoving thing. And consequently, his is a perfectly logical answer if the question is permitted. Uh, I have to say that it is undoubtedly this argument, the sweetest argument for God ever offered. It is called the cosmological argument, the argument from the cosmos. It takes many forms in later philosophy, deriving back ultimately uh, from this point in Aristotle and from certain suggestions in Plato. And we will see it again in Aquinas. All right, let's continue. We've seen so far in what ways the concepts of form and matter are central to Aristotle's metaphysics. They're the basis of his view of universals and particulars. They're the basis for his explanation of change the basis for his view of causality and of an ordered universe, though he himself was not consistent on this point, and the basis for his definition of God. Now let's take about a minute 
to see how Aristotle used the concept of potentiality and actuality to answer Zeno. And we'll take just one of Zeno's paradoxes because they all raise essentially the same issues. Remember the idea that you can't cross a room because first you have to cross half of it and then half of it and so on infinitely. And that therefore there's an infinite number of distances uh, that you have to get across and of course that's impossible to do. Now the whole paradox depends, as all of Zeno's paradoxes do, on the idea that there can actually exist an infinite number of subdivisions of the distance. What is Aristotle's answer? He says this is impossible. Nothing, he says, can actually, notice the word, nothing can actually be infinite. Now here we must distinguish between the infinite and the very, very large. The infinite is not simply 10 billion or 20 trillion zillion. The infinite is that which is greater than any particular quantity, which means it is no quantity in particular, which means it is a quantity which has no identity, which means it is forbidden by the law of identity. Whatever actually exists, Aristotle concludes, will always be finite, limited, specific in its amount. In what sense, then, can we speak of infinity? Only, he says, as a potentiality. And here's another use of his concept. For instance, we can keep dividing a line further and subdividing and subdividing. And as a potentiality, there are no limits. We can keep on doing it. In this sense, the line is infinitely divisible as a potentiality. But Aristotle's key point is no matter how much we keep subdividing it, we will always actually have only a finite number of parts. Two parts, or four parts, or eight parts, or 20 trillion zillion parts, but always some specific number of parts. And the same is true of the number series. As a potentiality, it's infinite. You can keep adding new numbers. But actually, whether you're going through it in your mind or writing it down on paper, you always actually have some finite specific number, even if you're counting by intervals of a zillion. In a word, there is no such thing as the actual infinite, and therefore Zeno's paradoxes collapse. Now, some of you will be curious to know how does Aristotle apply this to space and time? Why doesn't he regard either of them as actually infinite? And I will be glad to answer that in the question period if anyone asks. But now I want to See how Aristotle uses the same basic concepts, form and matter, actuality and potentiality, in his discussion of psychology. And here the question, as you know, is what is the nature of the soul? Remember, psyche is uh, the Greek for soul, and therefore psychology is the theory of the soul. <laughs> now you remember Plato. Uh, his view was that the soul is a substance, an entity, a self-contained entity, which is temporarily exists in the body, which is capable of independent existence in another world. And you remember Plato believed in reincarnation, the whole Pythagorean wheel of birth, and that there was for Plato a conflict, a basic metaphysical conflict between the soul and the body. And more exactly, between the highest part of the soul, what Plato called reason, and the body and the bodily influenced elements of the soul. And on that basis, Plato drew his ethics of asceticism, 
the body is a prison, prison, we should flee from sensory pleasures, philosophy is the practice of dying, etc. Now Aristotle, consistent with his basic approach to philosophy, wants to give a this-worldly account of the nature of the soul. A naturalistic, not a supernaturalistic account. And he starts with the ordinary Greek meaning of the term psyche, or soul. Soul, for the ordinary Greek on the street, meant the principle of life. Uh, it was not restricted to human beings or to conscious beings. It was the element responsible for life, whether possessed by a carrot, a dog, or a man. And, of course, where applicable, it was the element responsible for cognition. A thing which is alive in Greek is a thing which has a soul. And we still use that language today, although if you don't know Latin, you won't be familiar with it. Because you call a living thing an animate thing. An animate is simply an English derivative of the Latin word anima, which is Latin for soul, the translation of the Greek psyche. And therefore, when you say something is inanimate, you are literally saying it lacks a soul. And that is the original Greek usage. So soul, for Aristotle, you could put it this way, is that which makes a living thing living. <coughs> and we can, for instance, compare it, therefore, to madness. Madness is the essence of man, that which makes a thing a man. Well, similarly, soul, we might say, is the livingness of an organism, <coughs> the essence of a living thing. That which makes it a living thing. Well, what makes a thing the kind of thing it is? You know, it's always its form. And so if madness is the form of any particular man, soul is the form of a living thing. And the body, conversely, must be the matter of a living thing. And therefore, soul is to body as form is to matter. Now we can express the same point in the potentiality-actuality terminology. Suppose we have a handful, about 98 cents worth of chemical compounds. <coughs> this is in the days before inflation. Probably now those compounds might be worth five or six dollars. And they are so chosen that together they have the potentiality for life. Not the actuality, but the potentiality. Now let us organize them, put them together in various ways into a functioning living body. Now we have actualized their potentialities. Because of the new structure we have imposed, we now have actually the set of vital capacities and functions that before we only had potentially. And that, says Aristotle, is soul, which he defines in essence as the actuality of a natural body having life potentially in it. So soul is to body as form is to matter, as actuality is to potential. At one point he gives the example, it's like a, uh, a mark stamped on wax. The wax is the parallel of the body, and the stamp or structure imposed on it is the parallel to the soul. The soul for Aristotle, therefore, is not a thing, not an entity, but simply an aspect of a living entity. It is the name for those vital capacities which derive from organizing matter in a specific way. Well, now the question is, what is the form of a living body? What does differentiate it from non-living things? <coughs> and Aristotle's answer is a specific set of biological powers or capacities. Essentially, the power of nutrition, of growth, of reproduction. This is the bare minimum. 
When entity has these powers, it is alive. And if form, if a soul then represents the form of a living thing, its distinctive attributes, then soul must be conceived not as a substance or a thing, but rather as a set or collection of vital capacities. Because these are what differentiate a living thing. And so says Aristotle, if the I, E-Y-E, if the I were a complete organism, its uh, I-ness, its actuality, its soul would be its power of vision. If an axe were an organism, its axness, its distinctively axe capacities, its power of cutting <coughs> would be its soul. Well, the same thing is true with actual living things. You cannot discover the soul by dissecting the thing and hoping you'll pull out a non-material ghost which belongs to another dimension. It is the name for the characteristic modes and capacities of behavior that make a living thing a living. That's what soul is for Aristotle. Now, this doctrine has many major consequences. To begin with, Aristotle explicitly draws the conclusion there can be no soul without a body. No form without matter. No power of cutting floating free without the material axe. No vital capacities floating free without the entity which possesses those capacities. Therefore, for Aristotle, reincarnation, the soul leaving the body and coming back to inhabit a new body, is positively bizarre. And he is nothing but scornful of that doctrine. For Aristotle, for the same reason, there is no such thing as personal immortality. Now, why I put the word personal in, you'll understand shortly. Further, with this doctrine, the metaphysical basis for any soul-body clash has been removed. Soul and body are two aspects of one integrated entity, as against Plato's view. Now, I hasten to add, there is some Platonism in Aristotle's ethics, as we'll see. But it is not nearly as intense as in Plato, because the metaphysical and psychological foundation for it has now gone. There is no other world, there is no metaphysical soul-body opposition, and no personal immortality. <clears throat> now, so far I've just given you the introduction to Aristotle's theory of the soul, because he says there are various kinds of soul. In other words, various types of vital capacities which are to be discovered by observing the distinctive types of behavior living things engage in. There are three basic types of soul, according to Aristotle. The most primitive level are the entities which simply nourish themselves, grow, reproduce. All living entities have this type of soul. But one type has only this, and that is vegetables, or plants as we would call them today. And consequently, this set of powers, nutrition, growth, reproduction, is called the vegetative soul, or sometimes the nutritive soul. Next, we observe living things which have all the vegetative powers, plus the faculty of sense perception. In other words, a primitive form of consciousness. And as a result, these entities are capable of experiencing pleasure and pain when the appropriate stimuli reach their consciousness. And as a result, they're capable of experiencing desire or aversion and, in some cases, capable of locomotion, of moving toward or uh, from the object in question. These we call animals. And they have what is translated, unfortunately, as the, quote, sensitive soul. But that uh, 
does not mean uh, an esthete. It means uh, a living entity with the power of sense perception. Now note that this soul presupposes the previous one. The nutritive or vegetative soul is pre the precondition of keeping any entity alive. It makes possible the higher type of soul, which will be biologically self-sustaining and have the capacity of sense perception. Now note, as I said, it makes possible the higher type. Consequently, we can say that the animal soul is the actualization of potentialities established by the vegetative soul. So, in that sense, the animal soul is on a higher level. It represents a higher degree of actualization than plants. And finally, we reach man, who has the preceding capacities plus noose, the mind, the capacity to think, to grasp universals or abstract forms, to reason. He has the rational soul. And again, this requires the previous one. If we didn't have sense experience, we couldn't abstract, we couldn't reach reason. And therefore, again, the sensitive soul makes possible the rational soul. And the rational soul, when it emerges, is the actuality or actualization of those potentialities. And therefore, it's on a higher level than the animal soul. Now, Aristotle investigated each of these souls, each of these sets of vital capacities in detail in his work, the De Anima, the Latin translation for uh, uh, Peri Psyche, on the soul, you see. Uh, and in many other works, he studied it. Uh, but the central one is the De Anima. And here, I want to say just a few words on two subjects, Aristotle's views on the senses and on reason as a supplement to last week's lecture. I had to leave it out last week because you didn't yet have enough of Aristotle's key concepts to understand his view. Now, first on the senses, uh, Aristotle did uh, many uh, notable things. He was the first one to define the five senses, to specify their organs and functions. As I mentioned last week, he was the one who suggested that error is due not to the senses, but to misinterpretation by the mind. I have simply no time to survey his accomplishments in this connection. I do want to mention briefly one element in his account of the senses, however, namely, how did Aristotle answer the sophists? Now, you remember Protagoras' argument, which I stressed weeks ago, that the qualities that things appear to have, color, sound, taste, warmth, etc., they do only because of the sense organs of the perceiver. That these qualities are not really in the things themselves, and that therefore we never come in contact with reality as it really is. Now, what's Aristotle's answer? <clears throat> well, the first thing to say is that judging by his surviving works, Aristotle is inconsistent on this subject. Sometimes he seems to agree with the sophists that if human senses contribute to the kind of perception we have, that would invalidate the perception. And so part of the time, he asserts that the qualities we experience, like colors, smells, odors, etc., exist in things themselves entirely independently of human perception. This view is frequently called naive realism. Realism because of its stress on our perception of reality as it is, naive because the people who christened this view think that it is a naive viewpoint. Now, to naive realism thus defined, the sophists seem to have an obvious answer. Protagoras can say, why do you mean those qualities are out there independent of us? They so blatantly depend upon sense organs, and they vary with variations in the sense organs. How can you say that they are independent? 
Therefore, part of the time, Aristotle seemed to grant that in some way those qualities were a function of human perception. And then he didn't seem to be able to make clear how they nevertheless were to be regarded as valid. Now, his best attempt on this question is as follows. <clears throat> it's ingenious, and see if you can follow it for about three minutes. It uses again potentiality and actuality. The process of sensation, Aristotle says at certain points, is a process. In other words, a type of change. As such, it must be a passage from potentiality to actuality. It is, in fact, he goes on a dual actualization, a double passage from potentiality to actuality. One which occurs in the sense organ, the eye, the ear, whichever, one in the object being sensed. Let's take them one at a time, and first the change in the sense organ. Aristotle observed, or at least thought he did, that when you perceive, the appropriate sense organ comes to possess itself the particular quality being sensed. So if you look out to see a red object, and somebody looks at the eye of the seer, you can see in the appropriate light a little red image on the eyeball. It appears that the eye itself is temporarily reddened. Or if you put your hand into hot water to sense its temperature and then touch the hand itself, it seems to have acquired the quality that it's sensing to have become warm itself. You can yourself project the experience of tasting someone's tongue having eaten cherry pie, etc. But it also presumably acquires the same quality as the taste it's experiencing. So, on the side of the perceiver, sensation for Aristotle is a process in which the quality being perceived is actually reproduced in the perceiving organ. The organ, prior to the perception, has the capacity, the potentiality, to uh, be characterized by quality X, and sensing is the process in which that quality becomes actualized in the organ. Now, Aristotle goes on, there is an equivalent process taking place in the object, in the thing in reality, that which you are perceiving. Before you perceive a red object, take that as an example, before you do, in itself, he says, it is not actually red. To this extent, the sophists are correct. Actual redness is somehow a function of our human form of perception and wouldn't exist if there were no human perceivers. And the same for taste, sounds, etc. But, and here is his big disagreement with the sophists, the object in reality has, in fact, a certain potentiality. It has the potentiality of being perceived in a certain way by a human perceiver. And that is a real fact about the object. It is the kind of object which can, given a certain perceiver, be perceived as red or hot or whatever, as against the kind of object which in fact cannot, which can only be perceived as, for instance, yellow or coal or whatever. Now, in the process of sensation, says Aristotle, this potentiality of the object is actualized. The object which can be seen, for instance, as red, comes to be actually seen as red. The object which has the potentiality to be perceived as cold becomes an object which is actually perceived as cold. So a sense perception involves a dual actualization of the potentialities of the sense organ and of the object. Perception, therefore, is in contact with reality because in perception the object itself passes from potentiality to actuality and at the end 
you see it as it actually is. So that redness, for instance, doesn't actually exist on this doctrine, except when we perceive. But when we perceive, it does actually exist because our perception actualizes the potentiality of the object to be seen as red. You got that? <laughs> now, those of you who are familiar with the objectivist theory of sense perception will be able to see that Aristotle's heart here is certainly in the right place. And that if you suitably developed his position, his theory on this issue would be the same as the objectivist position. However, I must say that as Aristotle himself formulated this answer, and I've given you the gist of it, it is not fully satisfactory. It wouldn't and didn't stop the sophists. You need to say more than this, because their immediate comeback was, oh, well, that's all very fine. We agree with you that in perception, an object which has the potentiality to be seen as red actually is seen as red. In that sense, the sophist says, okay, there is a passage from potentiality to actuality. But they say the big question is when we see the object as red, does that mean that in itself it actually is red apart from us? Of course the skeptic says we perceive things as we perceive them. But what we want to know is are things in themselves actually the way we perceive them? Or as all we can say is this is the way we see objects, but who knows what they really are in themselves apart from us. Now to this objection, Aristotle offers no explicit defensible answer, at least in his surviving works. And in this sense, his views on the senses, though certainly a huge step in the right direction, are deficient. As for the objectivist answer on this issue, you know I promised you that for lecture 12. Now I want to turn briefly to a few words on Aristotle's conception of the process by which nous, or reason, operates. In other words, the process distinctive to man of abstract, rational, conceptual thought. Now Aristotle thought of the process of thought on the model of the process of sensation. <clears throat> Just as in sensation, your organ actually acquires itself the quality being sensed, you actually suck in, so to speak, the sensory quality being perceived, so on the level of abstract thought. In thought, says Aristotle, you in effect suck into your mind. You imbibe or receive the forms of things, the abstract essences or universals into your mind and become part of it. Just as in sense experience, the sensory qualities enter your organ and become part of it. And indeed, sometimes in terms of his own scheme, Aristotle contrasts, of all things, thinking with eating. See, eating being one of the central functions of the vegetative soul. And he, he does it very sweetly as follows. In eating, in nutrition, you take in the matter of things, but you incorporate that into your body, but the form is irrelevant, so you in effect metaphorically spit out or discard the form. But in thinking, you do the reverse. You take in the forms of things, the abstractions, incorporate them into your mind, but the matter is irrelevant, so you discard or ignore it. So in a very literal sense for Aristotle, but a very literal sense, thinking is a process of becoming informed. You get it? The abstract form actually comes into your mind. Yeah. That's where we get the term information, you know. Uh, now, says Aristotle, to go on to another point here, the mind must be capable of receiving all forms, 
Nothing in the universe is closed to it. Everything is knowable by human concepts. What then must be the nature of the mind in itself if it is to be able to receive, without any distortion, the forms of everything, all kinds of forms, throughout the whole universe? Well, in a word, Aristotle seems to answer, the mind can have no structure or nature of its own. Because he seems to argue, if the mind did have a specific nature or structure of its own, <coughs> if it had any identity prior to the act of thinking, how could we ever know by the use of human reason things as they really are in themselves? <coughs> if the human mind had a distinctive nature of its own, wouldn't we always be open to the objection? Well, we are then just grasping the world as we, as human beings, have to grasp it, given our particular kind of thinking mechanism. So our knowledge would just be subject, true only, for human beings. In other words, the view that Kant made his official philosophy thousands of years later. <coughs> now, apparently, to escape this conclusion, Aristotle seems to have drawn the conclusion that the human mind, the abstract conceptual faculty in itself, has no nature or identity at all. He says that in itself it is nothing at all actually before it starts to think. And therefore there's nothing about it to distort or alter the data of reality. In itself, he says, the mind is simply potentiality. The capacity for receiving the forms, but nothing actual. It is, he says, the place of forms. <clears throat> now he seems also to have been influenced by Plato on this question. If you recall, Plato wanted a place, a medium, in which his supernatural forms could be reflected. And he argued that it must be empty space, nothing, non-being. Uh, partly, Plato argued for this on the grounds that only a thing without any form of its own would be suitable for receiving all forms. Well, Aristotle seems to have taken over this doctrine and translated it from cosmology to psychology and argued the, that the mind, in effect, is like Plato's empty space, a nothing which can receive all forms. <coughs> now, this I interject, and I think you can see very easily, is a very dubious doctrine on Aristotle's part. If the mind is nothing in itself, how can it think? How can it do anything? What about the law of identity? which decrees that everything, including the mind, has an identity, that it's something, that it has a specific nature. But of course, as soon as you say that, the skeptics rush in and say, aha, if the mind has a specific nature, you can never know things as they are, only things as they are thought by the human mind. In other words, they draw the Kantian conclusion. You see, there is a tricky question here, and you can understand, I think, Aristotle's problem. <coughs> what is the correct answer? put that down for lecture 12 also. It's a brief addendum to our discussion of the senses. It does not raise any new issues. And once you understand the correct view on the senses, the issue of the mind on this point falls into place without difficulty. Now again, I want to say that Aristotle's views on the question of the mind's nature are obscure from the remaining works. Other interpretations are possible. I gave you, in effect, the standard interpretation which to me seems reasonable as an interpretation of Aristotle, but I wouldn't deny that you could find other elements in Aristotle which definitely ascribe a specific nature to the mind. On the basis of the existing manuscripts, Aristotle is inconsistent on this issue. <coughs> and one last word on Aristotle's theory of the mind. 
Now this point is only of historical interest, but I mention it for accuracy. Uh, the mind, according to the account so far, is sheer potentiality, simply the capacity to acquire or take in the abstract forms of things. But potentiality, as we know, cannot actualize itself. Remember the four causes. The clay, the potentiality of the statue, cannot mold itself. It requires an efficient cause to act upon it, actually to transform it, to realize its potentialities. Well, says Aristotle, the same is true with mind. So if mind, as we have discussed it so far, is the sheer potentiality of acquiring the forms, there must be another aspect of mind, <clears throat> an aspect which operates on the potentiality, bringing it to actuality. Mind, in its potential sense, Aristotle calls the passive reason. Mind, in its capacity as actualizer, he calls the active reason, A-C-T-I-V-E, the active reason. Now, about the active reason, there is only a few broken sentences in the surviving works of Aristotle. And it is impossible, therefore, to have any coherent theory of what he meant by it. All he really tells us, if you can even trust the translation, because the, uh, one of the key sentences can be read in at least four different ways grammatically, he tells us that the active reason is an impersonal re uh, reasoning agency, a kind of spark uh, which operates to actualize our potential to know and bring it to fulfillment. There is, he says, nothing personal about this active reason. It's an impersonal reasoning agency. And he seems to suggest that it's independent of the body, that it existed before the body, and will survive the death of the body. In other words, it's immortal. Now, this little fragment of Aristotle is an obvious carryover of Platonism, as far as we can judge. It's a non-material element of the soul which antecedes and succeeds the body, and is therefore in direct conflict with Aristotle's distinctive theory of the soul. But this view is there, and you should at least know about it, because the later Christians made a great deal of this active reason. <coughs> you see, they said, even Aristotle, the great lover of this earth, believed in immortality. And the point, of course, is that even granted this doctrine, Aristotle didn't believe in any personal immortality. There was no you that survived, only this abstract spark plug, which has therefore got no psychological and certainly no religious significance. But in any event, that's not how most of the medievals interpreted. And you see, between the prime mover and the active reason, they could really go to town to show that Aristotle is really compatible with Catholicism after all. Now, philosophically, that is ridiculous. But you can see that the residual Platonism in Aristotle made the medieval task of absorbing Aristotle into Catholicism at least seem possible to undertake. Well, so much for Aristotle's psychology. Now, before completing our summary of his basic philosophy, I want briefly to go back for a moment to the matter-form distinction. Uh, as Aristotle applied it to the universal particular question, to point out to you a major problem to which it led Aristotle. And this problem you have to know because it is a big hole in Aristotle's philosophy. H-O-L-E. Remember everything was comprised of two elements, matter and form, stuff and structure. Remember the house made of the bricks? And matter, we said, was the principle of individuation, what makes a thing this, this house versus all others. 
was made of these bricks, and form was the principle of universality. What made a thing as such? What made a universal term applicable to it? Why these bricks put together a certain way are called a house versus a bridge, a wall, etc. So that whenever we are applying an abstraction, a universal term, we are referring to the form of a thing. Now, let's follow out this analysis and see where we end up, because we end up in big trouble. Suppose that someone says to you, well, you say that what makes this house this one is that it's made of these bricks versus those. But what makes these bricks these bricks? Oh, and let's focus on a particular one. What makes this particular brick this one? <coughs> well, again, we break it up into matter and form. And we say this brick is made out of this glob of cement, uh, and that's what makes it this one. So this house is particular because it's made of these bricks, each of which is particular because it's made of its own particular glob of cement. But we keep going with the same question. What makes this glob of cement this one as against any other? And again, we break it up. Now let's suppose we short circuit the process and finally hit the end. Let's suppose we say with Aristotle's primitive physics that the ultimate irreducible elements are earth, air, water, and fire. And suppose we say that uh, cement is a certain form that we give to earth. Uh, and therefore, what makes this glob of cement cement is that it is this bit of earth, let us say, <coughs> organized a certain way. Now, we've hit the irreducible primitive element. We've stripped off form after form and finally reached the basic elements. Suppose with uh, Aristotle we say it's earth that we finally tracked down. Well, we have the same question again. What makes this piece of earth this one? Well, again, it'll have to be it's a union of form and matter. Its earthiness comes from its form. That's what it shares with all other parcels of earth. That's the universal. But what makes it this bit of earth? Well, you'll say the matter, the stuff of the earth. But now the question is, what is the nature of the matter? Speaking now of earth as an irreducible element, its matter will be the most primitive matter. What are its characteristics? The matter of the most primitive element. Now you should be able to see that you cannot ask for the characteristics of this primitive matter. Because to ask for characteristics is to ask for what kind of thing it is. And that is to ask what universals does it embody. In other words, you're asking for form. All universal terms refer to form. So when we get to the ultimate matter, it can't have any universal terms applied to it, not in itself. It must be a stuff which has in itself no characteristics. Remember, all characteristics come from form, from the way matter is organized. Matter is the source of this, not of such. Well then, when you get to the basic matter, in itself, apart from the organization it has, it has no characteristics. In itself, it must be indeterminate, i.e., absolutely unique, devoid of any qualities, lacking any identity. Now, this ultimate matter Aristotle calls prime matter. It cannot exist by itself, only with form. And the most primitive form impressed on prime matter gives you the basic elements, earth, air, water, and fire. Now you see how Aristotle got to this point. 
is very logically entailed in his whole analysis. But it poses the gravest, most insuperable problem to his whole theory of universals. Because if prime matter has no identity, <coughs> it must then be unknowable. And Aristotle indeed says precisely that. He says that matter in itself, the ultimate individuating stuff, is unknowable. But then if so, how can you know individuals? If what ultimately makes them individuals is an indeterminate, unknowable stuff, then all you can know about individuals is their non-unique characteristics, their non-individual characteristics. The characteristics they share with other things. In a word, all you can know is their forms. In a word, all you can know is universals. So in this way, Aristotle seems driven, in spite of himself, to a platonic conclusion that in the last analysis and looked at from this point of view, only forms or universals are knowable because the principle of individuation is in itself unknowable. Now this problem, which is just one of a number of problems posed by Aristotle's theory of universals, indicates a basic error in his whole approach to the question of universals. His basic error is to erect universals in particulars into two distinct elements within things in the world. That is the error which leads him to conclude that whenever we employ a concept, a universal term, we are focusing only on the universal element of a thing, on the form, with the result that the particularity of a thing becomes unconceptualizable, unknowable. Now, objectivism holds on the contrary, that it is a basic error to attempt to divide things into two such elements, and that it is an invalid question to ask what makes a thing a particular that it is an invalid attempt to try to find some special element in things metaphysically responsible for particularity. And you see, the task is hopeless at the outset. If you look for an individuating element, you're doomed to fail. Because if that element is indeterminate, nothing in particular, as Aristotle suggests, then how can it do anything, including individuate? How can the nothing in particular have the effect of making you for instance, unique and individual. On the other hand, if the element is determinate, if it is something in particular, then it is conceptualizable. In other words, it represents form, universals, that which is common to several things, and not, therefore, the individuating element after all. So the situation is an indeterminate element cannot individuate, and a determinate element cannot individuate. And the only rational conclusion is there is no such thing as a principle of individuation. And it is a mistake to look for one. Individuality or particularity, according to objectivism, is an irreducible attribute of all existence. To be is to be particular. Every aspect of a particular is particular. And in this sense, you cannot get beneath particularity metaphysically and try to find out what is responsible for it any more than you can get beneath motion and try to find out what is responsible for it. Particularity is inherent in the fact of existing. We don't, therefore, need a special element in things which is responsible for their particularity. Now, again, this is an obvious legacy of Platonism in Aristotle's part. He has the feeling that since universals are real, he has to add another element to counterbalance it, 
and give a metaphysical basis to particularity. But that is a result of starting as a Platonist and only ending up as an Aristotelian. Now, a proper theory of universals will not, therefore, try to construe universals as elements in particular. Rather, it will remove universals from metaphysics and make them an issue of epistemology. In other words, it will construe universals not as elements in things, but as a human method for organizing and integrating perceptual material. A method which is certainly based on reality, corresponds to reality, but which is the human form of grasping relationships in reality, not special elements or formal structures inhering in things out there. Now, of course, how this theory would be worked out in detail is extraordinarily complex. It is the most complex philosophic question. Time does not permit me to say even a word about it in this course. For the objectivist theory of universals, of concepts and concept formation, I refer you to two sources, Ayn Rand's Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, or a course I propose to give on Introduction to Objectivist Philosophy uh, sometime in 1974 which will have uh, at least one and possibly two lectures on this question, along with the rest of the material. For now, I simply want to point out that while objectivism agrees with Aristotle on the crucial point that uh, universals have an objective basis in reality and a non-supernatural basis, objectivism does not construe that basis as being that universals are distinct elements or structures in particulars. And in this sense, there are fundamental differences between the objectivist and Aristotelian theory of universals. Now, in conclusion of Aristotle's metaphysics, and just before the break, let's take a final survey of the universe as a whole, as seen by Aristotle, to bring out one last point. Observe that Aristotle's universe is a hierarchy, <coughs> a hierarchical structure, a series of rising levels, each level being matter for the one above, and form in relation to the one below. On the lowest level, of course, is prime matter, which never exists by itself, as I said. It is pure matter without form, pure potentiality with no actual characteristics. Aristotle describes it as the bare possibility of being something. <coughs> then comes the first actual existence, the primitive irreducible elements of things, which, as you know, Aristotle believes is earth, air, water, and fire. At this stage, we have the first real existence because we have form, a simple form, but form nevertheless impressed on prime matter. And now above the elements are the various inorganic compounds. These compounds are more complex organizations of the elements. So they give new form to the matter provided by the elements. So the compounds are the actuality in relation to which the elements are the potential. Now, as we know from Aristotle's psychology, these compounds appropriately reorganized, in other words, given an even more complex structure, give rise to living entities. So the compounds are potentially plants. They are the matter for plants. And when this potentiality is fulfilled, we have the new form, the new actuality, the next level, plants, the vegetative soul. And then, of course, comes the animal, so the sensitive soul, which, as we've seen, is the actualization of the potentialities established by the plant soul. And then comes man, the rational soul, which is the actualization of the potentialities established by the sensitive soul. Now, we still have place to go yet. There's a couple of things still higher on the metaphysical scale. According to Aristotle, the next highest 
higher than man are the intelligences which move the spheres. Why are they higher than man? Because they are still closer to pure actuality, pure form. They have only one potentiality left. That is the potentiality for circular motion, whereas man, of course, has a host of unrealized potentialities. And then finally, we hit the jackpot, pure form, pure actuality, the top of the hierarchy, the exact opposite of prime matter, God, the prime mover. And so we have a series of layers of reality, prime matter, the elements, the compounds, plants, animals, man, the intelligences, the prime mover. Each step related to the previous as actuality to potentiality, or form to matter. Now this doctrine is obviously influenced by Plato. You remember Plato's ladder of being, each level being higher than the preceding, all the way up to the pinnacle, which is the form of the good. Now, since Aristotle was a teleologist, he held that everything strives in some way for the good, the perfect, which in his terms meant everything strives for form, for actuality. In other words, actuality is better, closer to perfection than potentiality. And therefore, unfortunately, as with Plato, so with Aristotle. Each level of the pyramid he regards as higher as evaluatively superior to the preceding. There are, in a word, degrees of perfection, metaphysical degrees of perfection, ascending from the lowest, least perfect level, which is prime matter, all the way up to God, the pure form, the absolutely perfect. From this aspect, Aristotle adopts the view that form is the good metaphysically, matter the source of imperfection and deficiency. Here again, an obvious platonic legacy, a highly unfortunate one, because it means that in spite of his naturalism and his this-worldliness, Aristotle's ethics and politics contain a definite platonic anti-material influence. Because he was never able fully to free himself from his early Platonism, Aristotle's ethics and politics, as we'll see, never become fully Aristotelian. In other words, fully rational and this-worldly. And of course, as another consequence, all of this Platonism in Aristotle really helped the medievals in their attempt to appropriate him and claim him for Christianity. But that story we'll tell in a few weeks. For now, let's take our break and then turn to Aristotle's ethics. <coughs> I would like to begin with a word of reassurance. The half of the lecture which I've just delivered is the uh, half during the course, which is simultaneously the most technical, and the part during which I talk the most rapidly. <laughs> that is because I'm attempting to give you two lectures this evening in one. Uh, hereafter, the material becomes less technical and a little slower, at least. So if you have survived so far, the worst is over. Now let's turn to Aristotle's ethics. Now in a general way, Aristotle's ethics, as you would expect, is neither of the mystic nor the skeptic variety. Aristotle does not believe that ethics is a matter of commandments or of mystic insights into another spiritual superreality. As opposed to Plato, his ethics attempts to be naturalistic, this-worldly. It's concerned with men living on earth and attempts to guide them to successful behavior here in this life. 
without reference to the supernatural, either as the validation of his ethics or as the goal of life. And as against the sophists, Aristotle's is not a subjectivist ethics in which anything goes, all feelings should be indiscriminately acted on, and might makes right. Morality for Aristotle does not require an appeal to the supernatural, nor a collapse into irrational whim-worshipping. In this general sense, his approach to ethics is naturalistic and... <laughs> ...objective. <laughs> However, Aristotle did not know how to implement this general approach in the form of a rational, scientific, proven code of ethics. He held that ethics was not an exact science, where you could formulate precise principles and give mathematical proofs from logical premises. In ethics, he thought you could only formulate rules true in a rough way and for the most part. And you couldn't give formal proofs. Why? Well, you remember that science has to begin with facts, from which we then generalize, induce, arrive at the principles, and turn around, deduce, systematize. And what are the facts in ethics? What are the data to start with? Now, I interject, if Aristotle had given an analysis of the nature of life and of the uh, relationship between life and the concept of value in the form given by Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged, then he could have arrived at an objective ethics based on fact. But no such approach is anywhere hinted in what we have. He said, in effect, we have to start with the way people actually behave, with what they actually value. That is the data, the facts of ethics. Well, you ask, do we start with just anybody? No. There are certain men whom we all recognize to be wise and good and noble says Aristotle. And ethics rests ultimately on our perceptions of how these men, the wise and noble Athenians, behave. We observe them. We can then generalize, try to eliminate inconsistencies if we find any, provide a metaphysical framework to systematize their behavior. But after all, there are many fluctuations even among wise men. Many situations where our accepted general rules have exceptions, so at best, all we'll have at the end is a more systematic account of the moral principles governing the best Athenians, not a formal science. This is all Aristotle attempts to provide. Now, because Athens was a good culture in many ways, Aristotle says many things which are valid in ethics. But at bottom and at the base, he has no methodology to validate his ethical conclusions. And at many points, as we'll see, his ultimate answer to an objection is, that is how the wise man behaves. If you don't see it, it simply means you haven't been well brought up. Well, now, how shall we go about systematizing an ethics? Well, Aristotle observes that values are hierarchical. Everyone pursues some things for the sake of other things. You come to these lectures for the sake of knowledge. But the knowledge of ancient and medieval and early modern philosophy is not an end in itself. You want it for a purpose to guide your actions. Suppose, for instance, you have a career purpose. But your career is not an end in itself. You want it as a means to support your life, and so on. 
Some ultimate end, some final goal, says Aristotle, must exist which we want for its own sake and not simply as a means to something else. There must be an end in itself, and this is logically necessary. Otherwise, we have simply an infinite regress. You cannot value everything as a means to an end unless something is the end, the ultimate value. Just as there must be first axioms or archi, there must be an ultimate goal. And when discovered, it will serve as the standard in terms of which to evaluate all other goals and values. And so the question of ethics is, what is the end? And then, how best to achieve it? Well, we can learn certain things about the ultimate goal. It must be an end in itself, as we've said. It must be self-sufficient. In other words, something which, even if we had only it, we would have everything worth having. Because everything else, we want for its sake. And thirdly, and most importantly, it must be possible. It must, says Aristotle, be attainable by man on earth. Now, this is a crucial point of Aristotle's ethics. We must remember, says Aristotle, that we are setting up an ethics for man. We are prescribing how this sort of entity should behave. We must, therefore, take as our given the facts of human nature the kind of entity we're talking about. For instance, man by nature has a body. We cannot then damn him for having a body because that is inherent in being man. It is a fact the moralist must begin with. Man has emotions. He has desires. He is capable of all sorts of feelings. This is a fact the moralist must begin with. It is ridiculous, to, says the Aristotelian approach, to set up as an ideal the cessation of all feeling in the way that Plato virtually does. And that is inherent in man. You can't condemn him for having emotion. You can't condemn him for being capable of error. You can't condemn him for anything which is in his nature. It would be the equivalent, if I make up my own example, as supposing you were making up an ethics for dogs, and uh, you were to say the supreme virtue for a dog is to study the theory of relativity. And uh, uh, you then uh, give the dog a book of Einstein, and he sniffs at it, <laughs> uh, walks away, goes back to his bones, and you say, you see, I always knew all dogs were rotten. <laughs> By nature, they are stained with sin because they prefer bones to Einstein. Now, if that's the way a dog is by nature, then you are the senseless one to put forward that theory. It's not the dog's fault. Now, by this Aristotelian approach, to which he is not fully consistent, but nevertheless by it, the doctrine of original sin is inherently impossible. If something is inherent, it cannot be sin. Ethics must prescribe values and virtues based on the facts of human nature, capable of attainment by man here on earth. It follows, according to Aristotle, that man at birth is neither innately bad nor innately good. He is simply morally neutral at birth. If he becomes good, that's his achievement. If he becomes bad, that's his fault. He cannot blame his nature. He cannot blame his passions. Passions are simply facts of human nature. And as such, they are neutral. It's what you do with your passions, says Aristotle, what you make of them, what form you give to them, they being now the matter. That is what determines moral virtue. All right, what is the ultimate goal? which fulfills these traits, happiness. It's an end in itself. It's not a means to an end. It's self-sufficient. 
If all you had was happiness, but you really had it, you would be lacking in nothing worth having. And it is possible if you act properly to attain it. Now, the Greek word for happiness is eudaimonia, E-U-D-A-I-M-O-N-I-A. And Aristotle's ethics is therefore often called a eudaimonistic ethics. The word eudaimonia does not literally mean happiness, although it's usually translated that way. The word happiness for us suggests strictly an emotional state of enduring enjoyment in life. Now, eudaimonia for Aristotle certainly included that. He emphasized that pleasure was an essential component of eudaimonia, the Greek word for pleasure being hedone, H-E-D-O-N-E. He emphasized that the man of eudaimonia thoroughly enjoyed life. But eudaimonia is broader than simply the emotional level. It implies successful living on all levels, not merely emotional enjoyment, but successful action, unimpeded thinking, in general living, functioning, acting successfully. And further, for the modern usage, happiness suggests primarily an inner state of the person. So theoretically, you can be happy even if you're poor or persecuted by society, etc. For Aristotle, however, eudaimonia requires not just this inner happiness, although that, of course, is the crucial ingredient. He is, in this respect, a true follower of Socrates. But it requires also what we might call outer happiness. Eudaimonia, he tells us, requires a certain amount of money. Uh, requires a few friends, requires freedom. It even, he says, requires a decent appearance and well-behaved children. <laughs> you see then that it's a very all-inclusive state and it's perhaps best translated as a full, rich, happy, prosperous, unimpeded life of thought and action on earth. But rather than utter that mouthful, I'll just call it happiness. Now, given this as the ultimate goal, you will see that Aristotle's ethics will have no trace of the later Christian or Kantian approach to ethics. In other words, that ethics is a matter of struggling against temptation, forcing down your base impulses in order to be miserable and do your duty. He accepts, Aristotle accepts Socrates' basic idea that virtue leads to happiness. He holds that, Aristotle holds that the moral man has no conflict between his desires and his moral obligations. The moral man recognizes that if something is right, it will make him happy. And he gladly wants to do what is right, therefore, to do it for the sake of his own happiness. The moral man thoroughly enjoys his life, and morality indeed is justified precisely because it gives him the knowledge needed to enjoy his life thoroughly. Now you see how opposite this is from all the ethics that came later, and even from Plato's, with its preaching of self-sacrifice for the state or the world of forms etc. Now the question is, how is happiness to be achieved? You can't attain it in any old way. On this point, Aristotle agrees with Socrates against the sophists. Happiness requires living a certain way. How? Here is where Aristotle's metaphysics enters. Everything which exists has a distinctive nature, distinctive unique potentialities. And the nature of reality, we know, is that everything acts to achieve, to realize, to actualize its distinctive potentialities, to pass from matter to form, to express in reality that which is in it potentially, to fulfill itself, to realize itself. This is inherent in each thing, the striving after its full realization. If so, what can the good life, what can eudaimonia for a thing be, except 
to act as reality and its own nature require. Now, to take another hypothetical case, suppose that you were uh, making up an ethics for an acorn. <clears throat> the only thing you could tell this acorn is, look, cooperate wholeheartedly with the laws of reality and your own nature. Strive with all your might to actualize your distinctive potentialities and become an oak. Because if you try anything else, suppose, for instance, this acorn conceives an ardent passion to become a willow tree. <laughs> it is doomed to frustration, to self-negation, to misery. A happy acorn, an acorn of eudaimonia, would be one working to actualize its distinctive potentiality. Well, the same is true for man. He, too, has unique potentialities, and the good life, eudaimonia, consists of realizing. What is man's distinctive potentiality? Aristotle's psychology has already answered that. Reason. Noose. To be true to his own nature and the nature of reality, then, man must actualize his distinctive potentiality. Reason. The life of reason is thus the life of happiness. But what in this context is reason? Aristotle distinguishes two different uses of reason. Reason which is used to guide life, to regulate the emotions, to tell us how to act, that he calls the practical reason. And reason which is used to acquire knowledge as an end in itself, just to discover and contemplate truth for its own sake, without any reference to practical consequences. That he calls the theoretical or the contemplative reason. I interject that this is an invalid distinction, and I will say a word later about it, uh, but for now, let's follow Aristotle. If there are two uses of reason, the practical and the contemplative, then the life of reason will have two departments, the exercise of the practical reason and the exercise of the theoretical reason. And every man for Aristotle must exercise both insofar as he can. In each case, there will be a proper use of reason, a virtuous use. And remember, virtue for the Greeks means excellence of function. So there will be two types of virtues. The excellent use of practical reason will give us what is called the moral virtues. And the excellent use of contemplative reason will give us what is called the intellectual virtues. Let us look at each briefly and first the virtue of the virtues of practical reason, the moral virtues. Now, practical reason, as I said, is reason used to guide or regulate man's actions, emotions, desires. Parenthetically, I observe that for Aristotle, as for Plato, emotions are an independent, non-rational element of the personality, which require regulation by the reason. But for Aristotle, because he believes in only one world, and because he does not believe in a metaphysical soul-body clash, he does not believe that it is as hard to control the emotions as Plato does. He doesn't believe that there is an inherent war between reason and emotions. He believes that if you use your reason properly, you can control your emotions largely and live harmoniously and happily. Well, what is the proper use, the virtuous use, of practical reason? Well, to this question, Aristotle thought he detected a general principle common to all virtuous practical behavior. Whatever we do or desire, he says, we can do or desire in different amounts. We can take any human action or emotion and distinguish three amounts on a scale. 
the too much, the too little, and the just right. The golden mean. Virtuous behavior will always be the golden mean between the two extremes. On the one hand, the too much, the excess as it's called. On the other hand, the too little, the defect as it's called. Now Aristotle, in a very ingenious way, worked this out on subject after subject, ranging human traits into a threefold column. I'll give you just four out of a great many examples. Suppose the question is, what should your attitude be when facing threats? Well, on the one hand, too little fear. Kind of rash person who takes senseless chances. You know, not only walking through uh, a cannibal colony needlessly, but doing so naked. <laughs> that is the vice of foolhardiness. That's too little fear. On the other hand, there's the other extreme, too much fear. The kind we call a coward. And, of course, in the golden mean position is the virtue, the just right amount, not too little fear, not too much, but just right courage, the courageous person. Or what should your attitude be to food, to sex, to money? Well, the defect would be the person who turns against these things completely, the ascetic. That is a vice. It's as much a vice as rashness or foolhardiness is. Aristotle did not know what to call it because in an extreme form it did not exist in the Greek world and he calls it insensibility. Uh, it became the supreme virtue or one of them in the realm of the reign of Christianity. If Aristotle knew of the life of St. Francis, for instance, Aristotle would be appalled at the phenomenon. <laughs> but now at the other extreme, there's the people who are overzealous about these things. The self-indulgent profligates, Allah the sophists, or Gyges when he gets his ring and runs riot. <laughs> now what is the proper virtue here? The golden meat. Not too much passion for food, drink, and money, clothes, etc. Not too little, just the right amount, what Aristotle with the Greek tradition calls temperance. And here it does not mean temperance as in the Women's Christian Temperance Union. It means a sensible balance. Uh, between the extremes. What should your attitude be in regard to social relationships? Well, on the one hand, there's the person who attaches too little importance to them, what we would call a misanthrope. Aristotle calls that the vice of sulkiness. <laughs> on the other hand, there's the kind of person who is obsessed with people, who is obsequious and rushes around saying to everybody, I love you, please love me what we would call a social metaphysician. Uh, Aristotle says that's the vice of obsequiousness. And in the middle, the golden mean, the just right amount, the rationally friendly person. He has the virtue of friendliness. What should be your attitude to yourself? On the one hand, the person who has too low an estimate. The person who walks around saying, I'm no good, I'm rotten, I'm worthless. That person has the vice of humility. 
On the other extreme, there is the person who walks around saying, I'm the greatest thing that ever lived, who claims for himself more than is his due. That is the vice of vanity or conceit. And the golden mean is the person who has a high and earned self-respect, the virtue of pride. Now, I must leave the golden mean for a couple of minutes because pride for Aristotle is the crown of the virtues. The man of pride, the man of megalopsuche, the man with a big soul, which is now translated the magnanimous man, is his ideal man in terms of the moral virtues. And his description of it in the ethics is the liveliest passage in his ethics, very famous, so I must read it to you, even though it'll, I'll give you just a few excerpts, but it'll give you an idea of the type of man Aristotle admired and recommended. He's described. He's describing the virtue of pride. Quote, Now the man is thought to be proud who thinks himself worthy of great things, being worthy of them. For he who does so beyond his deserts is a fool, but no virtuous man is foolish. The proud man then is the man we have described. For he who is worthy of little and thinks himself worthy of little is temperate but not proud. For pride implies greatness as beauty implies a good-sized body. And little people may be neat and well-proportioned, but cannot be beautiful. <laughs> the proud man, then, is an extreme in respect of the greatness of his claims, but a mean in respect of the rightness of them. For he claims what is in accordance with his merits, while the others go to excess or fall short. Now, the proud man, since he deserves most, must be good in the highest degree. For the better man always deserves more, and the best man most. Therefore, the truly proud man must be good. And greatness in every virtue would seem to be characteristic of a proud man. And it would be most unbecoming for a proud man to fly from danger, swinging his arms by his sides, or to wrong another. If we consider him point by point, we shall see the utter absurdity of a proud man who is not good. Nor again would he be worthy of honor if he were bad. For honor is the prize of virtue, and it is to the good that it is rendered. Pride, then, seems to be a sort of crown of the virtues, for it makes them greater, and it is not found without them. Therefore, it is hard to be truly proud, for it is impossible without nobility and goodness of character. It is chiefly with honors and dishonors, then, that the proud man is concerned. And at honors that are great and conferred by good men, he will be moderately pleased thinking that he is coming by his own, or even less than his own. For there can be no honor that is worthy of perfect virtue, yet he will at any rate accept it, since they have nothing greater to bestow on him. But honor from casual people and on trifling grounds he will utterly despise, since it is not this that he deserves, and dishonor too, since in his case it cannot be just. The proud man does not run into trifling dangers, nor is he fond of danger, because he honors few things. But he will face great dangers, and when he is in danger, he is unsparing of his life, knowing that there are conditions on which life is not worth having. I interject so much for Aristotle's view on the question of better read than dead. Continuing the quote. And the proud man is the sort of man to confer benefits, but he is ashamed of receiving them, for the one is the mark of a superior, the other of an inferior. It is a mark of the proud man also to ask for nothing or scarcely anything but to give help readily, 
and to be dignified towards people who enjoy high position and good fortune, but unassuming towards those of the middle class. For it is difficult, it is a difficult and lofty thing to be superior to the former, but easy to be so to the latter. And a lofty bearing over the former is no mark of ill breeding, but among humble people it is as vulgar as a display of strength against the weak. Again, it is characteristic of the proud man not to aim at the things commonly held in honor or the things in which others excel, to be sluggish and to hold back except where great honor or a great work is at stake, and to be a man of few deeds but of great and notable ones. He must also be open in his hate and in his love, for to conceal one's feelings, i.e. to care less for truth than for what people will think, is a coward's part. And he must speak and act openly for he is free of speech because he is contemptuous, and he is given to telling the truth except when he speaks in irony to the vulgar. He must be unable to make his life revolve around another, unless it be a friend, for this is slavish, and for this reason all flatterers are servile, and people lacking in self-respect are flatterers. Further, a slow step is thought proper to the proud man, a deep voice, and a level utterance. Such then is the proud man. The man who falls short of him is unduly humble." Unquote. Now, if you consider this in the light of what was to come philosophically, the man who falls short of this is unduly humble. Uh, you can't believe it. This is uh, one of the few man-worshipping passages in all of philosophy. And it is fitting that it comes from Aristotle, uh, uh, who has, needless to say, been despised by centuries of Christians for this very passage and this very quality. And this, I should say, is one of the great kinships between Aristotle and objectivism. All right, so much for pride. Let's go back to the golden mean. Now, if you recall the four examples I gave you, the moral that Aristotle draws is it's not what you do or desire, but the degree to which you do it that determines virtue and vice. Virtue is an issue of moderation, of not going to extremes. Now, you can see, I think, that there is a common sense validity and in certain points even a highly admirable quality in the content of the virtues Aristotle endorses. And I've just given a few samples. The particular virtues that he's in favor of are generally sensible and even noble. But as a principle of ethics, it should be apparent to you that the golden mean is unsatisfactory and invalid. Here are a few obvious objections. First, notice that the trinity of attitudes which Aristotle ranges on a continuum do not, in fact, fall on a continuum at all. The vices in each case are differentiated from the virtues in kind, not just in degree, as Aristotle's doctrine requires. The obsequious social metaphysician, for instance, is not differentiated from a rationally friendly person by just having more of the latter's attitude. The uh, obsequious person's motive and interest in people is different in kind, not just in degree or amount. And the same is true on all these other cases. Notice, secondly, if it were just a difference in degree, there'd be no argument in favor of the mean. There is no reason why a mean is valid just because it's a mean. 
The mere fact that some attitude is in the middle between two other attitudes doesn't at all show that it's therefore desirable. For instance, on one extreme we have never committing adultery. On the other extreme we have committing adultery every night with a different partner. Now is the golden mean just the right amount? <laughs> just the right amount of murder? Just the right amount of envious hatred? Etc. Now on the here, obviously, your place on a continuum is irrelevant. Now Aristotle tries to encompass this type of case. And he says, in effect, these things, like murder, adultery, and so on, are already extremes. And therefore, the doctrine of the mean doesn't apply. You can't have a mean of an extreme. But this is not a valid answer on his part. Because the question is, how does he know they are extremes? If you go solely by the doctrine of the mean, we can range three attitudes on murder or on adultery, etc., and then pick the middle. Actually, the fact is Aristotle knew in advance that murder, for instance, is wrong. And he therefore classified it as an extreme. It's not that it's an extreme and therefore wrong, but rather it's wrong and therefore he concluded an extreme, which means that his virtues are not, in fact, derived from the theory of the mean at all, rather from, as he himself says, the observations of the wise Athenians. The mean doctrine is no proof or definition of these virtues, just a way of expounding what we know on other grounds, and as such is philosophically insignificant. And then, of course, there is the question, how do you know what the mean is in a particular case? Suppose one person says, never eat chocolates. And the other, uh, a chocolate uh, manufacturer, says, eat 200 boxes a day. Well, what is the golden mean? 100 boxes a day? Now, Aristotle considers such a case, and he says, no, I don't mean the arithmetic mean. I don't mean the exact halfway point. That would be silly. I mean the just right amount for a given person. The not too much and the not too little. And this varies from person to person. For instance, on chocolates, it depends on your health, your taste, your money, etc. The just right amount if you're on a diet is not the same as if you're not. The mean, he says, is a relative to a particular set of circumstances. It's not figured out by arithmetic. But then, of course, the question is, well, how do you know, given a set of circumstances, what is the mean? And you have to know if the doctrine is to be of any use to you in guiding your life. Well, Aristotle says, in effect, if you take into account all the relevant factors in a given situation, and if you're well brought up, you will just know. You will, in effect, perceive what the right amount is for you by direct insight. Now then, of course, the question is, well, what does being well brought up consist of? To be well brought up, presumably, is to be brought up via the golden mean. And the mean is what a well brought up person would choose. So you see, it's inexorably circular. And you see, again, he doesn't offer a scientific ethics. It's based ultimately simply upon his observations of the wise and good Athenians. Well, I don't want to belabor the mean doctrine further. It's had very unfortunate consequences. It's, uh, although I should say, for Aristotle's own sake, that uh, he didn't originate the idea of moderation by any means. That was an ancient Greek tradition. Nothing in excess goes way back before Aristotle, and all he did is systematize it. But in any event, that particular Greek doctrine, although given Aristotle's influence, has had terrifically unfortunate consequences. It's uh, led people to all sorts of compromising, fence-sitting, contradictions and evasion on principle. 
even though none of this was Aristotle's intention. You need merely think of the way that terms moderate and extremist are thrown around in American presidential elections to get an idea of the devastatingly bad consequences of the doctrine of the golden mean, even though, as I say, Aristotle would surely never have imagined its use by modern pragmatists. Now let's look at the intellectual virtues very briefly. That is to say, the virtuous use of contemplative reason. <coughs> In this use of reason, we pursue knowledge for its own sake. Essentially, science, mathematics, philosophy. We discover and contemplate truth as an end in itself, without any concern for practical action or the existential consequences of that knowledge. Knowledge on this level is not a means to anything, but an end in itself. Now, for Aristotle, this life of contemplation is the highest embodiment of the life of reason. It is superior to the exercise of reason in practical affairs. It is the summit of rationality. And this is the life which any man of adequate intelligence ought to follow in his view. Now, this brings us to another error in his ethics. I don't mean his emphasis on the acquisition of knowledge, but the idea that knowledge is an end in itself as against being a means of human action and life. Why did he commit this error? There are many reasons. Here are some. <clears throat> in general, no Greek, Aristotle included, grasped the relationship between knowledge and life, between reason and life. This is prior to the Industrial Revolution. And I would maintain as an actual fact that it would be impossible to grasp the relationship between reason and life philosophically prior to the Industrial Revolution. No one did. And I would say no one could have. Because at this stage of civilization, the skills needed to sustain life were manual and seemed to be obviously unintellectual. On the other hand, the knowledge which seemed pleasurable and demanding of a man's full intellectual powers, science, metaphysics, physics, mathematics, seemed to have no practical value, which it didn't at that early stage. And consequently, Aristotle, along with the rest of the Greeks, concluded that knowledge was not ultimately justified by its utility in life. This is an error, but certainly an understandable one at the stage of knowledge he was writing. Then in addition, there is, of course, a definite element of Platonism here. The exaltation of contemplation, retirement from action in the hubbub of life, and so on, uh, into private contemplation of truth. And, of course, we know that Aristotle never freed himself from this platonic element, never freed himself fully in any branch of philosophy. And, of course, the prime mover is relevant here. And that, in effect, is one of the main effects of Aristotle's God on his ethics. In this life of contemplation, Aristotle says, you get as close to the divine life as you can, because that's all God does is contemplate. For these and uh, still other reasons, Aristotle ends up advocating the contemplative life as the highest and best life. And uh, unfortunately, he even declares that human beings are too imperfect to live this perfect life. It's not, he says, insofar as they are human that they can live thus, but only insofar as they have an element of the divine in him. In other words, he contradicts his own distinctive approach again succumbing to a platonic element. Now, of course, this whole doctrine of knowledge as an end in itself has had very bad consequences. It has the effect of making Aristotle's ethics impracticable for most men, 
restricted in this respect at least to a comparative few who have the wealth and the leisure to contemplate. Most men, however, as Aristotle recognizes, have to work, they have to act, and they have therefore neither the time, the wealth, nor the ability for this sort of life. Consequently, for them, says Aristotle, the highest form of human happiness is impossible. In this way, and in this respect, Aristotle ends up with an ethics for a comparative few, similar in this one respect to Plato. All right, let's leave the moral and intellectual virtues and turn to one last point in connection with Aristotle's ethics, namely egoism. Aristotle is a thorough egoist in ethics. He believes that each man should be primarily concerned with the attainment of his own happiness, which is to be achieved by the exercise of his own practical and theoretical reason. In contrast to Plato, there is nothing in Aristotle advocating self-sacrifice, self-abnegation, the exalting of something above your own happiness on earth. Aristotle is a pure egoist. And in contrast to the sophists, Aristotle definitely says explicitly that the true egoist is the man of reason, not the whim-worshipping brute. The sophist, for Aristotle as for Socrates, is merely engaged in expressing the worst element in himself, the part that isn't really him, his irrational whims and passions. As such, he is simply destroying his real self, his reason, and, along with it, his only chance of fulfillment and happiness. In this sense, Aristotle is a consistent champion of rational egoism, the only philosopher to be such in all of philosophy, if you are talking of the major philosophers and not simply the disciples who parrot the master. Now, because this is such an urgently important issue in ethics, I want to read you a few passages from Aristotle, even at the risk of taking a couple of minutes. I think, don't you think you get a feeling of the philosopher from hearing a few things in his own words that you can't get from any... Uh, summary. The good man, he writes, this is also from the Nicomachean Ethics, that's the ethics named after his son Nicomachus, dedicated to his son. The good man, quote, <coughs> wishes for himself what is good and what seems so, and does it, and does so for his own sake, for he does it for the sake of the intellectual element in him which is thought to be the man himself. And he wishes to live and be preserved and especially the element by virtue of which he thinks. For existence is good to the virtuous man, and each man wishes himself what is good. While no one chooses to possess the whole world if he has first to become someone else. He wishes for this only on condition of being whatever he is. And the element that thinks would seem to be the individual man or to be so more than any other element in him. And such a man, the good man, wishes to live with himself, for he does so with pleasure, since the memories of his past acts are delightful and his hopes for the future are good and therefore pleasant. By contrast, wicked men seek for people with whom to spend their days and shun themselves, for they remember many a grievous deed and anticipate others like them when they are by themselves but when they are with others, they forget. And having nothing lovable in them, they have no feeling of love to themselves." Unquote. And here's another little excerpt. Quote, just a brief fragment I'll quote you. Existence is to all men a thing to be chosen and loved. 
And we exist by virtue of activity, i.e. by living and acting. The producer loves his handiwork, therefore, because he loves existence. Unquote. How's that? And as to self-love, quote, such a man, the rational man, would seem more than the other, the irrational man, a lover of self. At all events, he, sign, he assigns to himself the things that are noblest and best and gratifies the most authoritative element in himself, reason, and in all things obeys this. And therefore, the man who loves this, reason, and gratifies it is most of all a lover of self. Therefore, the good man should be a lover of self." Unquote. Now, you see how this ties in with Aristotle's advocacy of pride as the crown of the virtues. And it is also a majorly important element in his ethics, one that went into eclipse and was denounced by all subsequent philosophers and not resurrected until many, many centuries later. Now, I can't resist adding that Aristotle had a remarkable theory of friendship, egoistic friendship, a fascinating theory, which I love to tell you about because it exemplifies one of the best elements in his ethics, but unfortunately there is no time. But if you ask about friendship in the question period, I'll be glad <laughs> to say a few words on it then. Now, to sum up our brief survey on Aristotle's ethics, you can see, I think, that Aristotle's ethics is very mixed in its merits. Much of the time, he's on the right track. Many points you can agree with. His advocacy of happiness on Earth as opposed to the Platonic asceticism and supernaturalism. His emphasis on reason, the acquisition of knowledge, egoism, pride. But these points, as you see, are embedded in a framework which is streaked with hangovers from Platonism and which is avowedly not scientific or proven. As such, Aristotle's ethics was not strong enough to combat the Platonic and sophistic rivals in the field. And therefore, to answer a question which I get all the time, so I hope you will regard this as at least a partial answer, this is one of the major reasons, this deficiency of Aristotle's ethics, why his philosophy did not become a major influence over all future philosophizing right away. When a philosopher's ethics is weak, no matter how many good points uh, uh, he has in metaphysics and epistemology, his influence on men will be significantly lessened because men feel the influence of any philosophy primarily through its ethics. That, after all, is the primary purpose of philosophy, to teach men how to live. As an analogy, if you offer men a magnificent internal combustion machine, but they have no idea how to use it and there is no fuel to make it run, and the alternative is a horse and buggy which actually works, to say nothing of promises of a mystic flying carpet. If only they pay enough money and go to church long enough, they will choose the horse and buggy or the flying carpet over the uh, unusable internal combustion machine, if you get my analogy. You should not be too surprised, therefore, to learn that shortly after his death, Aristotle's philosophy went into eclipse and took many, many, many centuries to exhume. But that's a story we will start telling next week. Now, in conclusion, let us say a very few words about Aristotle's politics. 
For the most part, in his political writings, Aristotle contented himself with describing existing states in the ancient world and making recommendations for their improvement within the framework of their basic premises. Aristotle was not a political revolutionary with fundamentally original ideas in politics, certainly not on the order at least of Plato, who, regardless of the content of his views, was a major innovator in politics. Aristotle is more the documenter rather than the crusader in politics, and his politics is therefore less interesting or important than any other part of his philosophy. In general, to merely synopsize a few of his conclusions, he was not a major collectivist like Plato. He objected vigorously to Plato's communistic and totalitarian views, but Aristotle himself, his own political writings, was certainly not a major individualist either. Now, it's one thing to say that his metaphysics and ethics laid the basis for which his subsequent followers centuries later derived individualism. That is true. But judging simply by the actual politics Aristotle himself recommends, which reflects the more platonic elements in him, you'd have to say, in effect, that Aristotle unfortunately followed his golden mean in politics. He took a position that today would be pretty much described as a variant of the middle of the road. For instance, he objected to Plato's view that the few ideal philosophers should have absolute power. He objected to rule by platonic experts. But he says this would be ideal, only it's impractical and utopian because it's too much risk of it degenerating into tyranny. You see, conceding to Plato that this would be ideal, but simply impractical. He also objected to rule by experts on the ground that it must, we must have, he says, a government of law, not of men. That is a central Aristotelian idea. A constitution must be defined, which spells out which the what the government can and cannot do. There must be laws, and we do not want a government by arbitrary decree. In this sense, he's the father of the idea of constitutional government. On the other hand, uh, like Plato, Aristotle has no concept that all men have individual inalienable rights, or that the function of government is only to protect these rights. As was common in Greece at the time, he was thinking of the state as the city-state, of course, and he thought that it had a variety of proper functions, educational, cultural, religious, economic. He says somewhere that it should see that there are restrictions on the amount of wealth, so that it's not too much or too little in any given person's hands. In general, he advocates functions of the government quite incompatible with anything that an individualist politics would advocate. For Aristotle, as for Plato, the important issue of, of politics is what group should have ruling power in the state? What group should be able to control the policies of the state? And in answer to this question, he came up with a sort of mean position, that is, moderate position, as the most practical and stable type of state. He said, we don't want one where the few wealthy upper-class aristocrats rule, because this can generate into tyranny or oligarchy. And we don't want one where the masses of poorer people rule, uh, as in democracy, because that becomes unlimited mob rule. And that's hopeless. Both Plato and Aristotle were staunch opponents of the idea of unlimited mob rule. Rather, said Aristotle, the best state is a cross between rule of the rich and of the poor, rule of the few and of the many, a state ruled neither by the mob nor by an elite of experts, but by an intermediate class, what we today call the middle class, you see. 
a state such as this Aristotle called a polity, P-O-L-I-T-Y, and he advocated it as, as the best, most practical constitution. In other words, a large middle class should hold the balance of power and act as a check on the what today would be called the proletariat on the bottom and the few potentially tyrannical aristocrats at the top. So there is a definite sense in which Aristotle differs from Plato's totalitarian philosopher King theory. And as I mentioned, Aristotle objects to Plato's communism, but in very, very mixed and rather feeble terms. Remember, Plato objected to mine and thine. Well, Aristotle says, mine and thine are inherent in human nature. And you only create conflicts and resentments if you try to communize property and families. Better to leave people private property and encourage them to develop a community spirit voluntarily so they'll share with others voluntarily. Now to this audience, such an answer speaks for itself. It is not a very powerful answer to play. However, I should point out that even though Aristotle allows the citizens of his state to have much more say than Plato does, Aristotle's state, as he describes it, also inclines in the direction of being an aristocracy run by a comparative few, even if not in nearly so pronounced a form as Plato's. For instance, Aristotle and Plato, I should say, and the Greeks in general advocated slavery. They had no concept of inalienable rights. They argued, uh, Aristotle argued, for instance, and I stress again, he did not originate this view, nor was he distinctive in holding. But he argued that there were natural slaves, men who had the capacity to understand a rational argument, but not to exercise reason independently, who were in effect living tools. And he said it would be to their own benefit and to the benefit of a master if they serve and work a natural master. In other words, those in whom theoretical reason is fully developed. Because the slave gains the benefit of contact with a fully rational man to direct him, and the rational man, exempt from the need for menial work, has the leisure for contemplation. Now, this is an obvious gross flaw in Aristotle's view, but I stress it is not a flaw in his ethics or philosophy. It is a flaw in his anthropology. That is to say, in his view of mankind, and a flaw which he shared with the Greeks in general. The Greeks never really grasped, at least not until the time of the Stoics, a later school, that human beings, all human beings, are metaphysically equal. Uh, the Greeks of the classical period all held that men are divided into the metaphysical superiors and the metaphysical inferiors, one destined to rule the other. This is an error, but it is an error in their theory of the nature of man, not an error in their ethics. Their ethical error is simply a consequence of it. And they had some provocation for it. They were the only civilization. Around them was not another civilized world, but a world of crude, ignorant barbarians. And at that stage of the game, if you lived in Greece, you had a certain warrant for looking around you and saying, we are human and the aliens are simply savages. Uh, I may point out that Aristotle also excluded women from citizenship in his state. Not only slaves, but also women, on the grounds that they were metaphysically inferior uh, again, equally invalid, but equally warranted by a study of the women in his purview. Uh, he goes so far as to build this into his metaphysics in a doctrine which has no importance at all, but he says, for instance, that in conception, 
when men and women unite to produce a child, the woman contributes the matter, the low element, and the man contributes the forms. I may say, to be accurate, that on this one point, Plato was ahead of Aristotle. He recognized the metaphysical equality of women with men. Aristotle did not. Also, in his capacity as a Platonist, Aristotle generally scorned tradesmen, mechanics, uh, that type of person. And he says their life is, quote, ignoble and inimical to virtue. And they, too, are to be deprived of citizenship or any active participation in the state. That's the, simply the equivalent of Plato's view that the productive group is out of the state, or is, is in a, a, serv a servile position. You see from these few points that there's a heavy Platonic influence in Aristotle's politics. There is not much of great value in it, and I do not want to pursue it further now. Now let's sum up Aristotle as a whole. In looking at his overall philosophy, you can point out many errors and many bad points. To review a few, his inadequate account of sense perception, his inadequate account at many points of the nature of mind, his doctrine of God, of teleology, of contingency, of prime matter, of the golden mean, of contemplation as an end in itself, his deficient politics, etc., etc. Now, all of this you must know if, as students of objectivism, you claim any kind of affiliation with Aristotle. Because these are facts, and in conversations, people will confront you with them. And you will be amazed at what Aristotle could say. But in the process of inventorying his bad points, I ask that you not forget what he did achieve and in what context. Starting from a culture in which there were only Platonists and Sophists, Aristotle laid down the basic principles of a scientific epistemology. The role of the senses, the role of abstraction, the laws of logic, the types of reasoning, the basic rules of validity in deductive reasoning. He laid down the principles of a naturalistic, this-worldly metaphysics, one reality, a world of particulars, of entities acting in accordance with their natures, lawful, intelligible, graspable by man, and in ethics, the principles of a this-worldly ethics, according to which man's goal is to achieve personal happiness and personal pride by exercising his intellectual powers to the fullest. On these topics, Aristotle did not say the last word. But as I have observed, he often said the first of any value. The pro-reason, pro-life, pro-this-world approach to philosophy, in its essence and at root, is the creation of Aristotle. And it is for that that we owe him a debt of gratitude, no matter how great his other errors and platonic carryovers. Now, the best summary of Aristotle's achievements, of his good points and of his errors, is given by Aristotle himself at the end of what is now the final section of his works on logic. He is referring in this passage to his work in logic, but his remarks are applicable much more widely to his entire philosophy in all branches. Now this passage that I have in mind is a fairly extended one, but I think it only fitting to conclude by reading it to you, giving the last word to Aristotle himself to assess his own achievements. Quote, 
that our program then has been adequately completed is clear. But we must not omit to notice what has happened in regard to this inquiry. For in the case of all discoveries, the results of previous labors that have been handed down from others have been advanced bit by bit by those who have taken them on, whereas the original discoveries generally make an advance that is small at first, though much more useful than the development which later springs out of them. For it may be that in everything, as the saying goes, the first start is the main part. And for this reason also it is the most difficult. For in proportion as it is most potent in its influence, so it is smallest in its compass, and therefore most difficult to see. Whereas when once the foundation is discovered, it is easier to add and develop the remainder in connection. This is in fact what has happened in regard to rhetorical speeches and to practically all the other arts. For those who discovered the beginnings of them advanced them in all only a little way, whereas the celebrities of today are the heirs, so to speak, of a long succession of men who have advanced them bit by bit and so have developed them to their present form. Of this inquiry, in other words, logic, on the other hand, it was not the case that part of the work had been thoroughly done before while part had not. Nothing existed at all. For the training given by the paid professors of contentious arguments, that's the sophist, was like the treatment of the matter by Gorgias, for they used to hand out speeches to be learned by heart. And that was their idea, you see, of teaching logic. And therefore the teaching they gave their pupils was ready but rough. For they used to suppose that they trained people by imparting to them not the art, but its products. As though anyone professing that he would impart a form of knowledge to obviate pain in the feet, were then not to teach a man the art of shoemaking, or the sources whence he can acquire anything of the kind, but were to present him with several kinds of shoes. For he would have helped him to meet his need, but he has not imparted an art to him. On the subject of reasoning, we had nothing else of an earlier date to speak of at all, but were kept at work for a long time in experimental researches. If then it seems to you after inspection that such being the situation as it existed at the start, our investigation is in a satisfactory condition compared with the other inquiries that have been developed by tradition, there must remain for all of you or for our students the task of extending us your pardon for the shortcomings of the inquiry and for the discoveries thereof, your warm thanks. Unquote. Thank you, ladies. Question one, would you please go into more detail with regard to Aristotle's view of infinity with reference to space and time? Yes. Uh, to begin with, Aristotle holds, and this is an answer to several other questions also, space and time are both relational in nature. Space is a relationship between entities in different places. It is not a thing. It is not a empty, gigantic container in a way that Plato suggested. It is simply the name for the relationship which obtains between things in different places. And therefore, the universe itself is not surrounded by space. There is no outside the universe. The universe does not have a place. Place, Aristotle defines in essence as the innermost boundary of a container. And, um, uh, for instance, that uh, cup is contained by 
a little imaginary circle on the uh, surface of the table. That's its place. Uh, since the universe has, is contained by no entity, it has no place. It simply is. Places, and therefore spaces, are within the universe, not the other way around. And therefore, since the universe is finite, any space is necessarily finite. As to time, I've already given you in general his view of time as a relation. <coughs> it is the measurement of motion, the now, now, now of a moving entity, and therefore there can be no uh, time if there is no motion. And if we now ask the question, is the universe as a whole in time? Aristotle would say no, for exactly the reason that it is not in space. Time is in the universe. The universe is not in time. For the universe to be in time, there would have to be a standard of motion external to the universe as a whole, in relation to which you judge the universe and discuss its duration. But of course, there is nothing external to the universe. That phrase is simply meaningless, external to the universe. Therefore, says Aristotle, it is not true that the universe has existed for a finite amount of time, which would imply creation out of nothing. Nor is it true that the universe has existed for an infinite amount of time, which would imply the actual existence of infinity, of an infinite number of seconds, uh, which he denies, as I said. It is not in time, period, finite or infinite. It is simply eternal, which technically means out of time. Not time considerations are not applicable, only to things within the universe. So much for that point. Does objectivism hold that man is metaphysically the highest form of existence? No. Not as the question is worded. Objectivism says you must not make value judgments as part of metaphysics. Not metaphysics in the strict sense of a description of the nature of the universe. Values belong to ethics. They belong to the evaluative branches of philosophy. And we all that is a basic platonic error, which of course Aristotle to this extent shared, to ascribe value judgments intrinsically to reality. We all that values are objective, not intrinsic to reality. That is, they are based on facts of reality, but they presuppose a certain type of being and are designed for the purposes of that being. If you ask a different question, is man the highest form of existence given a human, an objective, but a human code of values? Then the answer would be yes, of course. He is the highest form of existence by human values. But then, of course, that means given human values, not from God's viewpoint. And by that same principle, if an oyster was in a position to make competing claims, he would have a right to say from an oyster's point of view, an oyster is the highest form of existence. The one respect in which you could say man is superior to all other living things is that he is the most efficacious living thing. And in that sense, he is the superior one. But that is using a human standard, superior in the art of survival. That is not something intrinsic in reality. It's not as though God grades everybody from the oyster on up or down. Um, Could you briefly describe and indicate what gave rise to Aristotle's theory of intellectual intuition? Well, I can certainly do it briefly by simply saying that by intellectual intuition, 
is meant nothing more nor less than Aristotle's view that the conceptual faculty has the power of grasping self-evident truth when it confronts it. As to his reasons for that, I gave them last lecture and I won't repeat them. Uh, is it the fallacy of reaffirmation through denial to hold the primacy of consciousness premise? <clears throat> if not, how does one answer a proponent of this doctrine so as to point out its falsehood? Yes, it is. Uh, the prime. All axioms are established ultimately, all philosophic axioms, by the technique of reaffirmation through denial. Uh, that is to say, they are established primarily by the fact that they are self-evident. You cannot prove the existence of existence to anybody. You can simply point to reality and say, there, look, this is existence. And if he says, I don't see it, you can say, well, in other words, you, nothing exists, then you don't exist, and your denial doesn't exist. And so you wipe yourself out. You have to presuppose that something exists to say that nothing exists. That's true. But that is not a proof that something exists, because you have to assume that something exists to utter it, too. You cannot get beneath axioms. All you can do is point to them. Then if the person has a trace of civility, he will see that the fact is self-evident, and you can proceed. Uh, if uh, he doesn't, you simply let him define his own metaphysical status as non-existent and proceed accordingly. What do you mean? I've got so many good written questions that I'm going to try and take some before I go to the floor. What do you mean by an invalid question? To answer briefly, a question based on an unwarranted assumption. Suppose I ask you, what, what movie is the universe watching? <laughs> you say, well, there's no answer. That is an invalid question. A universe can't watch a movie because that would imply there's something outside the universe and the universe has organs of perception, both of which are false. That assumption is therefore unwarranted. Suppose I ask, who created the universe? That presupposes something or somebody created the universe, and the only question is who. That is an unwarranted question, unless you can establish that the universe was created, in which case it's appropriate to go on and ask, well, who did it then? But only if you establish it. Let's take one from the floor. Try and keep your question not too technical. You don't have much time, so at the very back I see a gentleman. Yes. Uh, I said, according to you, that no concept of utilitarian knowledge was possible prior to the Industrial Revolution. Do I believe that nothing, uh, there was no equivalent or partial approach to the Industrial Revolution prior to the late 18th, early 19th century in other cultures? Well, first of all, you somewhat state inaccurately my view. I do not believe that, uh, that, that knowledge was entirely divorced from utilitarian purposes. And Aristotle indeed has the practical reason which is specifically the utilitarian reason. I said the knowledge of science, of abstract philosophy, of mathematics, they did not grasp its relationship to life. Primarily the knowledge of physics, math, biology, psychology. And that, I say, they could not grasp prior to the Industrial Revolution. Do I believe there was no equivalent of the Industrial Revolution? Well, if you mean by equivalent in early times that men used knowledge, they used it to make discoveries on a certain level. Yes, they did. But 
if you mean they created the kind of culture which made blatant and accessible to everyone the imperative role of the mind in actually sustaining human existence, the highest reaches of the mind in sustaining the actual physical life of man, then I say, yes, in that sense, it was only the Industrial Revolution that made it possible. Uh, which Aristotle, in turn, made possible the Industrial Revolution by making possible modern science, by making possible the Renaissance. And from that point of view, Aristotle created the circumstances that ultimately corrected his own doctrine. Uh, when in thinking the mind takes in the form of the object, wouldn't that leave the object unformed? Just matter. No, no. I, that's just metaphorical. You don't literally suck in the form. You, su you suck in an equivalent of the form. You have the same form in kind in your mind, but not the literal same numerical form. That actual form remains out there. Good heavens, look at this part. Well, uh, give me a second and see if I can sort out some of this. Please give Aristotle's views on friendship. Oh, fine. <laughs> I just happen to have a little booklet here. <laughs> Get it out. Now, I'll give you just a brief summary. I wanted to put this in, but I just couldn't squeeze it in. Uh, friendship, in the Greek view, was any mutual attraction or relation between two human beings. It was wider than our present use. Aristotle defines three types of friendship in the Nicomachean Ethics. One, the friendships of utility. These are what we would call business relationships, commercial relationships. In this case, there are certain practical advantages that you want from the other person, and he wants from you. You don't love the person for himself, but you want certain advantages from your relationship. And that's the lowest type of friendship. It's perfectly reputable, but it's not very much. Then comes what he calls the friendships of pleasure. This is, in effect, what we would call a social relationship, in the sense that you uh, delight in the uh, social pleasure that you get from this particular person. He's convivial, amusing, witty, funny, nice to go to the movies with, has a sparkling personality, etc. Now, at this point, you have a good time with your friend, but you still don't love the person for himself, but for the amusement. This essentially is the kind of relationship that children uh, have uh, when they have friends, or that not fully formed adults uh, have. <laughs> And this type of friendship, says Aristotle, is comparatively easily dissolved if and when, in effect, condense, the person runs out of jokes. You see. <laughs> he doesn't say that, but that's the idea. <laughs> then there is, the, finally, the friendships of the good. In this case, you love the person for himself <clears throat> because of his character, the values he represents. He represents all the things that you think are good, and you admire him, and you mutually help each other to live the good life. Now, I stress that Aristotle is not a Kantian. He did not think that gaining practical advantages from such a friendship corrupts it. He did not think that gaining pleasure from such a friendship corrupts it. 
He is not a Kantian who thinks that to be a true friend you should be completely selfless and get nothing practical or pleasurable out of it. So there is utility and there is pleasure in this type of friendship. But the essence of it, and it's the supremely important type of friendship, is mutual moral admiration on a profound level between two human beings who are equal morally. Now Aristotle draws many fascinating conclusions, fascinating in the light of the Christianity that is to come by virtue of their diametric opposition. It's almost as though he read the Sermon on the Mount and went out of his way to say what he thought of it. <laughs> For instance, he stresses that you cannot expect to have many friends like this. You cannot say, I love everyone. I'm friends of mankind as a whole. You must have standards. You must know the person intimately. You don't love your neighbor as such. Friendship is a response or love, as we would say today, is a response to values and virtues in the individual. And, he says, this implies a certain equality between the two. A superior cannot feel friendship for an inferior, and vice versa. And, he says, you owe more to your friends than you do to strangers. Of course, the exact opposite of the view that you should love your enemies particularly. Now, you know, there's a certain type of uh, modern Christian called a utilitarian, who says that the uh, proper way to act is the greatest happiness of the greatest number. So that, for instance, if you see, uh, and this is the typical example that utilitarians give, a burning on, uh, building on your left, burning which has two strangers in it, and a burning on your right, uh, building on your right, burning, which has your wife in it, you should save the two strangers because there's twice as many as in the other one. Now, of course, Aristotle would reject that emphatically. You should save your friend because you owe him more. He matters more to you rationally than the two strangers. And, he says, since you love the man because he's good, if and when he turns bad, you dissolve the friendship. You do not forgive in any all-embracing Christian way. It's not judge not that ye be judged. It's judge and be prepared to be judged. And if the one or the other uh, defaults, then the basis of the relationship is gone. Now he goes on to ask, can you be friendly with yourself in this sense? And he says, yes, if you're a good man. He says, a friend is one who admires a person for his character, who wishes what is for the welfare of that person, for that person's sake, who uh, lives with that person, who has the same tastes, the same likes, the same dislikes, who grieves and rejoices along with the person. Now, says Aristotle, all of this is most true of the good man's relationship to himself. He admires himself. Remember the great-souled man. He works for his own welfare, his own happiness. He has the same likes as himself and dislikes. And there, of course, he means to contrast him with the inconsistent villains who do something and feel guilty about it or want something and feel frightened of it, etc., who are inconsistent with themselves. When this kind of man, therefore, has complete friendship with himself, which is another way of saying he regards himself as the supreme value. When he does something for a friend, it is not a sacrifice. He is selfish because he is still gaining the greatest benefit for himself. He is defending his values, uh, doing the good, being rational, and it is to his own ultimate happiness. Friendship, he concludes, is based on self-love. You cannot admire goodness in others unless it's present in yourself. And if it's present in yourself, 
The first person you should admire is yourself. That's a brief taste of what is a very excellent in essentials doctrine. I'll take one from the floor. All right, I won't. Then I'll take one from the writing. Um, is there any reason in which, any respect in which objectivism would disagree that the means to achieve happiness is to actualize one's distinctive potentialities? Well, if you mean by that, would objectivism disagree that the means to achieve happiness is to live by reason? Certainly not. Of course, objectivism advocates that happiness is the means to re uh, reason is the means to happiness. However, objectivism does not advocate reason simply because it is distinctive to man. You see, Aristotle justifies the life of reason essentially on the teleological ground. That reason is man's distinctive striving. And uh, to Aristotle's defense of the life of reason, the objection is, well, why is the fact that something is distinctive to man per se an argument for living that way? Now, one very superficial philosopher that I won't mention by name once said to me, uh, what if man's distinctive feature was a long nose? Would it follow then that you should emphasize the life of the long nose just because that's distinctive? Well, I mean, that's really a, not even fair to Aristotle because he explained, given his metaphysics, why the distinctive was the thing that counts. But in any event, in a way, that kind of objection is open if you reject Aristotle's teleology. Objectivism says that you should live by the life of reason because reason is a necessary means to sustaining life and therefore to the achievement of happiness. But the crucial middle term is the role of reason in sustaining life. The fact that reason is through and through practical and not contemplative in that disembodied otherworldly sense. That is a basic disagreement with Aristotle. You say that Aristotle was the first influential empiricist in the Western world. Does this mean that there was one before him? Yes. In a way, the sophists are empiricists. They don't believe in innate ideas. They believe that everything begins with experience. They happen, however, to believe that everything ends with experience also. And that experience gives you no knowledge. So they are skeptical empiricists, and that's just what David Hume later made all empiricists into, and that's what they all are today, with rare exceptions. Would a universal genius such as Aristotle be possible today? No. Uh, there is too much known for anyone to be able to encompass it all today and to do significant original work in every field, every special science included. A person would simply die prior to that time. The Renaissance was the last period in which universal geniuses were possible. But you don't have to be disheartened. Content yourself with being a genius in one area. It's very hard to do. <laughs> What is the objectivist view of Aristotle's distinction between essences and properties? Leaving aside the fact that Aristotle considered essences to be intrinsic rather than objective. Well, if you leave that and everything it implies aside, then objectivism subscribes to it. We do distinguish between the essence and the consequences of the essence. Uh, when, for instance, uh, Ms. Rand says that it is wrong to define capitalism as the system that leads to the greatest happiness of the greatest number, even though in fact it does, that is the, based on the Aristotelian idea that the essence is the fundamental and the properties are its consequences and that it's a catastrophe epistemologically to confuse the two. In that sense, objectivism subscribes to it. But of course, the issue of essence as being intrinsic 
uh, tied in as it is with his idea that universals are formal structures inherent in things, is the heart of the metaphysical aspect of that doctrine. And with that, as I indicated, objectivism disagrees. When you say that no uh, men are metaphysically superior, do you rule out the idea of inborn superior intelligence? No, I do not. I'm glad you give me a chance to clarify that. I mean by metaphysical equals, when I say men are metaphysical equals, the view that all men, we just leave aside here because it's not relevant, deformed, actually deformed men, like people run over by a truck or born without a brain or something like that, but you take just the normal man. Regardless now of his education, uh, objectivism holds, and this is not by any means distinctive to objectivism, that all men are metaphysically equal in the following respect. Not that they are equal in intelligence. There may or may not be differences in innate intelligence. That has not been established. Not that they are equal in physical attributes. Not that they are necessarily going to be equal in moral character. God knows would be huge differences. But that they are equal in one crucial respect. Namely, they are all members of the same species. They have the same defining attributes and all the properties that that entails. And therefore, the same moral code is applicable to all of them. And therefore, they all have an equal opportunity by at birth of achieving moral perfection. And if anyone doesn't, it is his volitional default, not a congenital deficiency with which he's born. That is all that is meant by saying that men are metaphysically equal. It does not mean they have equal intelligence, necessarily. Intelligence is not a prerequisite of morality. That is to say, a high intelligence is not. The full use of your intelligence is required to be morally perfect. But the full use of your intelligence is possible even if the level of your intelligence is modest. Would you give again Aristotle's definition of the soul in terms of potentiality and actuality? Yes, I don't have the exact words before me, but the idea is the soul is the actuality of a natural body having life potentially in it. You want to stay for five minutes more? That's interesting, but too long. Same thing. Too thick. Does Aristotle consider the possession of self-awareness essential to or a defining characteristic of consciousness? No, not that I am aware of. And of course, it is not a defining characteristic of consciousness, because there are creatures on the perceptual level who are conscious but do not display any self-awareness. Self-awareness is a distinctive feature of conceptual consciousness, which is capable of turning in and distinguishing itself from other things and forming the idea of itself as against other things. And therefore, it is an attribute of the conceptual level. Now, Aristotle certainly believed that human beings have this faculty. He ascribed it to what he called the common sense, which was the general power of awareness, which could turn in on itself. He himself, so far as I know, ascribed it incorrectly to the perceptual level of consciousness. Uh, but I don't know that he anywhere says that's an essential element of consciousness. Does the acceptance of existence as an axiom say anything about its primacy? Consciousness is also an axiom, after all. 
Yes, it does by implication. When you present the axioms of philosophy in the proper order, you must first, you must begin with the axiom of existence. You could not begin with the axiom of consciousness because the first question anyone would ask you, if you tried to walk in and say, there is consciousness, which by the way is precisely what Descartes attempts to do, as we'll see in several weeks, the first question anybody with sense will ask you is, what is your consciousness conscious of? So first you must establish existence. Only then can you establish the axiom of consciousness. And in this respect, the establishing of the axiom of existence uh, implies the primacy of consciousness. Uh, uh, the primacy of existence, excuse me. Is believing in something so strongly as to exclude everything that might stand against advice according to Aristotle? No. Uh, he did not make that application of the doctrine of moderation. On intellectual matters, he thought you should believe strongly, firmly, and as an absolute in what you regard as true. He had passionate convictions which he was willing to stand by. The doctrine of moderation was applied specifically to your treatment of emotional matters, as I indicated in the lecture. I don't, I'm trying to get ones that could be answered briefly. Would I review why it's invalid to search for a principle of individuation? Well, look at it this way. Is the principle that you find individual or not? If the principle that you find is individual, then are you prepared to take its individuality as a primary or not? If you do, then you've already accepted individuality as an inherent fact of existence beneath which you won't get. If you don't, then you've gone into an infinite regress of finding individuation for the individuator of the individuator, etc. There are certain facts that you cannot get beneath. And one of the legacies of Platonism in Aristotle is the attempt to get beneath the ungettable beneath. <laughs> uh, is Aristotle's concept of active reason as an imperson impersonal spark introduced in order to avoid the charge that a personal motive controlling the intellect would make all cognition biased. It might have been. Uh, there's nothing in the surviving work to uh, warrant that, nor to contradict it. Uh, as far as we can tell, it was uh, explicitly a view on his part deriving from his theory of the four causes. Um, uh, see if I can get one more. Did Aristotle distinguish for himself between epistemology and metaphysics? No, those are later terms. Aristotle called uh, uh, what we call today epistemology, essentially he called it analytics or the um, analysis. And he did not even have the word logic, as I recall. Uh, he used the word uh, organon was the name given to his logical works which was the instrument of knowledge. So epistemology is a much later term. Equally, he did not have the word metaphysics. He called it first philosophy. It was a later, uh, I believe, second century AD uh, uh, term, the term metaphysics. It came from, if I remember, is this right, Alan Andronicus of Rhodes, who was compiling Aristotle's works many centuries later. And he didn't know very much about philosophy, and he found Aristotle's writing on what we now call metaphysics. And uh, shortly after, he had compiled the writings on physics, 
and he didn't know what to call it, and there was no name for it, so he called it in Greek, the stuff that I found after physics. And that came out, the metaphysics. But if he had found it before astronomy, we'd call it pre-astronomy. But that's <laughs> When do you expect your book to be published? That's the last one. Um, since I've been asked that every week, I will answer in a sentence, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. <laughs> Thank you very much. This course continues with Lecture 6.